Episode 50 of the Winning Six podcast, the official podcast of BehindBookPass.com. I'm your host, site's editor-in-chief, Adam McGee. And just like way, way back in Winning Six 1, joining me this week, we have Ty Windish, our managing editor. You know it's a special occasion when Ty makes the effort show up. And we also have, not Jordan Tresk, as I called him back then, but Jordan Tresky. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the show, Jordan Tresk. Jordan Thank Tresk you. was a one-time guest. Um, in spite of some some nice opinions, Jordan Tresk was never invited back. He was replaced by Jordan Tresky. I don't know. There might be a little bit of a Gar Brooks, Chris Gaines situation there, but we'll leave that for now. That might be something we'll get into later in the podcast. It's not the way we're going to start the 50th podcast by losing ourselves down that Everybody, road. everybody simultaneously turns off winning 650. Or, or turns up the volume. I think you're underestimating our listeners. <laughs> Let's talk books. I want to start off by talking about the Milwaukee Bucks' last two games. There has been a lot of unrest, I'll put it, amongst Milwaukee Bucks fans in the last week or so, and that's for a whole variety of reasons. I'm going to start off by looking in deep, though, at what we saw on Sunday night in Philadelphia as the Bucks beat the 10-win Philadelphia 76ers by one point in overtime, and then by looking at Monday night, tonight as we record this, where the Bucks although it didn't look like it at the end, effectively got blown out by the Orlando Magic. There's a lot being read into these games in different ways. Is there much to like about either? Is Let's see, what's the best way of putting this? Would you say that the, the win over the Sixers was better than the loss to the Magic? Uh, what's better mean? Was it better basketball? Probably not. I think losing to the Sixers by one in overtime is worse than like losing to any other team, except like the Lakers or the Nets. They have 10 wins, and they've played 81 games or something like that. They started 1-30. There's, there's nothing good about beating the Sixers by one in overtime, especially when you're a lottery team. I mean, it's ugly basketball. Like Ty said, it's ugly basketball all around. Um, I guess in a real-life scenario, it's like, would you rather be beaten by a bat 
or beaten by a golf club. Either way, they both don't feel good. Um, <laughs> um, Would so, you rather listen to Gar Brooks or Chris Gaines, one could say? Now that is a question <laughs> that is, you need a lot of time stewing on. Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> I was actually going to answer that question seriously. Uh, I... Uh, I I would say it was better to win against one of the worst teams to ever play basketball in the NBA than lose the way it did against the Magic. But that's also saying that admitting that it was a horrible game. Well, I want to do because I promised on Twitter last night, Sunday night once again, that this would happen. I promised that we would go toe-to-toe, tete-a-tete, <laughs> over the Sixers game. What I want to start off with is, we disagree. We have different viewpoints on this. I want to go to begin with is, what do you see as the pros of the Sixers win? Well, this is from an outsider's perspective, so... Don't I? My comments can be totally wrong all this stuff, but I just feel like if you lose to the Sixers, it is a very. I I just feel like even if it's game eighty or if it's game twelve, your lot like the morale in the locker room is gonna be just like you know it, it's gonna be bad. It's gonna be people pointing fingers, people trying to figure you know, you know, asking people why didn't you give a better effort that night or whatever stuff like that. I know this is stuff that you can't. We're, we like to, you know, quantify everything, the statistics and all this stuff, and it's so cliche that uh, they they wanted it more, and that's why they won. But I, I don't know. I just found it. I I think like if you, it's it would just be like a like the stink on them. You see them win against a team like the Warriors in a historic fashion, and in the same season you lose to a terrible Lakers team, and you get you are so close to losing this to the Sixers in just like this gross, disgusting way, and it, I don't know, I just, I feel like there's more to gain from it from an off-the-court perspective than the whole tanking motivation behind it, so, I don't know, it's, it's old school, it's dumb, it's cliche, but I just feel like that's a little better than going from 20% it's getting like a top five pick to twenty one percent or twenty two. Yeah, you know I mean, yeah, uh, I, I I bashed the win, but just to step in and cut Adam off in episode fifty, just like I probably did in episode one. <laughs> good teams. I mean, it sounds ridiculous to say a loss to the seventy sixers could do that. Only one team that isn't pure garbage has lost to the seventy sixers all year. Portland lost to them in January. Here's a list of the other teams to lose to the seventy sixers. Pelicans, Lakers, Timberwolves, Suns, Magic, Nets, Kings. Some of them more than one time. But those are the only teams in that one Trailblazers game to lose to the horrible, horrible 76ers, who, again, lost 30 of their first 31 games this season. As much as you know, everyone wants to make a big deal out of the tank, and I know we're getting there, the Orlando game was much more important to the tanking than the Sixers game. I feel like most people sort of wrote it off as a win because... 76ers. 
So I do think that even though it was uglier than than losing to the Magic, beating the 76ers is not a bad result. Ty cuts me off so often that I had to give him his own podcast just to... to <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm used to that. For me, it's really important I need to, to lead off with this now because it's going to come up a lot. Tanking is not what this is about. It's not the central point of any of this conversation, but it is part of the context of all of the answers. Um, I don't feel like any of us are proponents of tanking. I know Jordan definitely isn't. I don't want the books to tank, but at the same time, I don't feel like they should be going out of their way to win games, um, if that makes sense. That's not something that I feel is controversial. Good coaches on good teams have done that throughout the years. Um, the the most amusing part of all of this for me is Greg Monroe got rested against the 76ers. And the context of in where the books are actually worried about rest, so they rest Monroe against the 76ers, yet they're prepared to bring Jabari and Yanis back in late to try and beat the Magic. I just... I can't connect the dots there. It's a very strange sort of thought process that both of those things can coexist within the same team with from the same decision makers. To go to the Sixers game, I really, I don't... You mentioned, Ty, the, the Blazers for, were, I suppose, the one good team, the one playoff team that actually managed to lose to the Sixers. I think that's a good example of where, where you said, Jordan, it might have had sort of a negative effect on, I don't know, where it's perception outside or morale in the locker room. I don't think anyone in Portland cares. Now, maybe that's because they've had a lot more to sort of enjoy and they have a lot more to look forward to still that it didn't really matter. I just don't know how big of a deal that is. For me, I can only pick out negatives. And it's not for looking to tank, but it's just... Middleton played great. Middleton had a career-right 36 points. Why did Chris Middleton come back? Why did he need to play? Because we talked about this last week, Jordan, and we'd started to work off the assumption, well, maybe they've actually decided to shut Middleton down for the season. They've just said, he's played so many minutes, it makes sense. Let's shut him down, get him his rest. There's nothing to gain from him playing those extra minutes. I, in my head, I know I'd sort of come to accept that, and that, that felt like the right thing to do. You look at a team like the Nets, this is the funny thing, because people would easily go, oh, the Nets are a bad team, what does it matter? The Nets shut down... Tad Young and Brooke Lopez, but make no mistake about it, they are not tanking. There's no benefit to them to tanking because their pick is going to Boston. So that was just general manager, not the head coach, because there isn't one in place at the moment, really, but the general manager saying, okay, these are our two prized assets at the moment. Let's protect them. We've nothing left to play for in this season. Let's do the smart thing. Next season is more important. Phil Jackson did the same thing in New York, by the way. I, I'm pretty positive they lose their pick no matter what. Porzingis and Melo haven't played in like a couple weeks. Zinger might come back, but it's unclear. It just makes sense. So that was my first problem, Middleton coming back. He played great, and yeah, that's, that's brilliant. 
we all know Middleton can score 36 points, particularly against the Sixers. I don't feel like there's any real benefit to the books or to us from actually seeing that. Then there's just the way the game actually plays out, because if we're talking about the potential embarrassment of losing to the Sixers, what's any less embarrassing about having to go to overtime and only beat them by one after nearly imploding so many times? And the interesting thing for that for me, and I saw a lot of tweets about it last night, it was why the the book sort of threw it away. And I know when we, we talked about it privately, that was something to you, Jordan, that you felt the manner in which they sort of fell off in particular would add a little bit more of a stigma to it if they had a loss to the Sixers. For me, the questions of that on why, why does that happen, it's like that's the perfect time to realize why are the books sort of falling off in second halves? Maybe it's because all the guys are really tired. So maybe because they played 35 minutes by the time the fourth quarter rolls around and they're 80 games into the season and they're trying to get motivated to pull out a win against the Sixers and they do get tired and then it's like, really, what is this about? I, I don't see the benefit. I don't see the benefit in pushing for the win. It's not that you go and you try to lose, but even... The Magic game tonight, there was a spell where the books actually, it was up, magically it was up as high as 20 at one point. But then they actually managed to cut it down. And it was cut down by the bench unit. So what most coaches would do with that, particularly at this time of the season, when there's nothing really to play for, it doesn't matter that much, they'll leave those guys in. We're, we're talking about trying to find a bench for so long. I love, well, let's see what... Giannis and Jabari, we know what Giannis, Jabari and Middleton can do. Let's see what Plumney and Henson can do when they get rolling. And that was one. Henson got hooked last night as well when he was playing really effectively. And final minutes, he was gone because we're going back to sort of like to win. It just doesn't make sense as in what the strategy is there. I can't, I can't wrap my head around it. I think you just sort of let it play out and you see what happens from there. Am I wrong in feeding any of that? Or No, I think you're 100% correct, and I agree with you, because I think this speaks to a different thing than this whole tanky thing that's kind of risen from Bucks fans I've seen on Twitter in the last couple of weeks. And I understand that. I, Of course, I would like a better draft pick, all that stuff like that would be... I, I'm not, in, not against that and all that stuff. But the way that you brought it up, like, in the manner that they're doing, I don't agree with it at all. I mean, the fact that Chris Middleton, I'm glad that he's back, and I'm glad it's not a serious injury or, or with his thigh or whatever it was, left thigh bruise order. But as we saw tonight, <laughs> Jamar gets down to a kind of a, it wasn't a scary moment. Well, yeah, it was a scary moment. What am what I saying? He's coming up limp at the end of the third, and I know I look on the box score on the ES, on ESPN or NBA.com or whatever. Play 33 out of 36 minutes. But it's just at this point it doesn't make sense. For I know this is it seems very rash and uh, maybe impulsive or whatever. But this whole minutes thing, we it may we're at the point where the season doesn't matter. If they we're talking about wins that don't matter at all and. If people are angry that they're winning because it's worse than the draft pick. But the way that they're doing it is even worse than 
say if they go from the eighth pick to the tenth pick, they're playing guys there. Jason Kidd is electing to play guys out of you know these crazy amount of minutes, and I, I don't know. I just don't like I said. There is no strategy behind it, and for something that I, I think a lot of us last year, whatever your problem was with Kidd or whatever, I felt like that was one of his strong suits. Like he knew. Maybe not to get all of the right guys in the right unit, but he knew to get the guys minutes when they that he felt that they deserved them. This year, it has felt very different. It has felt very maybe because the, like we were talking about this last week when we were talking about minutes um, with Middleton, especially maybe because of the disparity in the starters and the bench for the whole pretty much the whole year. He feels like he has to rely on the starters to to win games because he's clearly not tanking. It's I, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that he's like trying to tank or whatever. It, that's where it gets really frustrating, and it it's always been there this whole season, but it, it feels like it's been more noticeable because the team is at where it is. they're eliminated from the playoffs. We're, it's April uh, – it's going to be April 12th when everybody's listening to this. You don't need to play your young stars, especially that have proven that – they look like the pieces that everybody wants them to be. It's just, it's maddening. It's, it really is maddening. And it, some people might think that, don't worry about it. It's just the, it's game 81 out of 82. Well, these are, like I said, I said this last week, these are bad habits, and you don't want them to even show up whatsoever. But they're showing up at the time that you don't want them to. And it's just, I, I can't understand it. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's, it's rash to think to to have those thoughts, Jordan. I mean, we've been talking about the the rest issue and the minutes issue for probably months now. I would say, yeah. I've written about it at Behind the Buck Pass and at Hoops Habit in a, a general NBA sense. The best teams rest players, and you can make the argument that they they can rest players because they have the best players. But, I mean, I don't know who's a top player on the, the San Antonio Spurs that's had a Kawhi Leonard anymore. LaMarcus Aldridge is very good. I don't think he's a top ten player. Tim Duncan used to be. He's not anymore. They still don't have anyone in the top 20 minutes played. Neither do the Warriors. They rest their players. Stephen Curry doesn't play 35 minutes a game. I believe he plays around 32, although I'm not positive. It might be up to 33 or 34 this year. But, I mean, you look at guys like James Harden and Jimmy Butler who consistently come in at around 37 to 38. Those guys don't play the whole year. That's not a coincidence. You know, that's not in, it's not injury prone. It's not like they're, they come down and, you know, break their leg or whatever every season. They, they just play too much. It's too many miles. And you, especially if you have to carry a team on offense like those guys do. And guess what? Like Giannis Antetokounmpo and Chris Middleton often do at times. You know, you can't do that for 82 games and play – 35 plus minutes a night like those guys never finish the season healthy so I mean I, I think the rest issue is a, a, a huge issue even if this team has 40 wins right now like I think it still matters but especially so considering that they have you know sub 40 sitting at 10th worst in the NBA you know fighting for lottery position and still playing these guys 36 37 38 more minutes per game it is ridiculous I mean Guys like Damian English, Johnny O'Brien never see the floor where it's like, are either of those guys have star potential? No, they don't. But they have role player potential. They're never going to achieve any of that if they don't play. So at the same time, while the young stars who do have star potential are playing too much, the guys who you really need 
in a, a cap situation that's going to be crowded with having to re-sign Giannis and Jabari, already dealing with Henson's contract, already dealing with Middleton's contract, you need these cheap second-round picks to do something for you. And first-round picks in Rashad Vaughn, who thankfully has been getting playing time lately. It just doesn't make sense to not give those guys more run, especially now where, look, it's not really tanking if in game 81 you say, you know what, Giannis, you've earned it, take the night off. Inglis, have a start. Like, let's see what you can do. Here's your shot. It's against a pretty crap team, so we're all going to second-guess you here behind the buck pass, but have a shot to do something. And they haven't done that, and it has been frustrating. The only word that I can think of to describe it is brain dead. Like, really, there's there's nothing. Jabari was completely unforgivable because it's as simple as we can all look back on last season. It's funny because even Kid sort of seems to turn his nose up at last season a little bit. Um, and many books fans do, as in, yeah, it was... I'm trying to think now. Were they the seventh... Six seed, six seed. Yeah. Um, but it sort of felt like an eight seed style campaign, and obviously the books have a history of going all out for those campaigns, and that gets sort of sneered at now. At the same time, they managed to be a six seed without Jabari Parker last year, and so much was made, and rightfully so, about they did that without him, and what could they have been with him, etc. So... On um, what are we tonight? Tonight was the eighty-first game. Eighty-one yep. games into the season, after three quarters, playing crazy minutes recently. I don't care if it's the slightest knock he picks up. If he has reason, then he needs to go back to the locker room. He has to leave the floor to be assessed for even a second. He, he's not playing again the game, and you know what? He can miss the last game because what's more important? It's like even a stupid little injury to any one of those guys at this point. You, you, people could talk all they want. People could be on Jabari about, oh, Jabari's defense isn't where it needs to be or whatever. Well, yeah, it would be even further away if he got a stupid injury now that cut into, say, even a month of time where he could be working out in the offseason. A month of time where he could be resting up or he could be sort of thinking get the grips of what has been his first real season. And for me, it's just... It makes no sense. There's no logic to it. As I say, good coaches on winning teams, forget tanking. Tanking is relevant in the books context. Sure, losing games is beneficial to them in terms of the draft, but it doesn't have to be about that. If this was a winning team and they were about to head to the playoffs, you'd be resting, guys. There's lots of other bad teams around the league. Sure, drafts placing might have a little factor in it, but for the same reason, the Kings... The Kings have shut down DeMarcus Cousins. I see two reasons for that. One, he's their best player. What's what's the point of playing him now? There's no there's nothing to gain. If he has two colossal games, it hurts your draft stock. It doesn't teach you anything more about him. And in those games, who knows? You're risking injury to a guy who can pick up injuries, proven. Secondly, if the Kings are as crazy as everyone believes they are, he is also their most prized asset, and if they want to move him this summer, well, he, they better not get him injured in the meantime. So when you have a team like that who could sit back and say, well, there's no benefit to us from a guy playing, the books are so much so into the future as an organization. It's what everything is about. Like, I can't watch 
Jabari come back in and play those four quarter minutes and come back in with three minutes to go and they're down nine and it's kid decides let's put Jabari and Yanis in. The big thing for me, and this is the biggest thing that I found from last night, because there's a lot of people who are very quick to jump in on both sides. And obviously you've got those who say they should be tanking. Forget that. Leave it aside to what it is. On the other side of the coin, the argument is more ridiculous. When you have people who say, oh, well, it's for development. For Yanis and Jabari, it's good. They get to play sort of crunch minutes. I saw this last night. Crunch minutes. An overtime game. <laughs> why, why do Yanis and Jabari need practice to play against the Sixers in overtime? Why, why do they need to gear up for that? What experience are they going to draw from going... Oh, that time Ish Smith torched us in overtime. That time we couldn't guard Hollis Thompson or Robert Covington. And if only they were a little bit better at shooting, it wouldn't even have been close. We would have lost anyway. Like, there is no benefit to that. It's like, they're not more battle-hardened or tested by having gone to overtime with the Philadelphia 76ers in a pointless game in Game 80 of a lost season. And obviously the development's been there, but in terms of results, that's what this year is. I don't know. It upsets me. Mm. Uh, we've got one game left, and I dread to think. I Maybe Kill will go. We've got one game left. I've got to use all these minutes up at once. Maybe we'll see 48 minutes for for Giannis Jabari. Bayless, Bayless, he has said, might be fit to go in game 48, or in game 82. So do we see a return of Jared Bayless playing 48 minutes? It's like, why, why, particularly Bayless? This is whether the books want them. So if the books want to resign Bayless, if he's had any sort of injury, why would you bring him back and risk him re-injuring himself? And if you're Bayless, if you've had any sort of injury, you've had the best season of your career, why would you come back for one game to prove yourself? You'd go, eh, I'm okay, thanks. I'll save myself because I'm going to make a lot of money this summer. It's like, across the board, none of it makes sense. Complete and just to put up one more thing, too. I feel like we kind of overlook at this point in the season that if these guys are starting or these guys are playing, we kind of think that they're healthy. But a lot of the cases, they're not. I mean, it's a long season. People pick up injuries. And I feel like this year more than ever, whenever we've heard someone going out, we've heard it from our own team, like, you know, Mark Carter-Williams, Grievous Vasquez, they're saying, oh, I've been playing hurt. We've seen stars. Anthony Davis say he said that he was playing hurt for three years. These guys play with injuries. Sometimes they don't say it. I mean, it, if the, I, I don't know. But if we get, I feel like we no, lose. No, that's, that's very valid because I can only think off the top of my head, and the books have had a lot of injuries this season. Mm. There's only two injuries that I can think of that obviously happened in-game, or two players that could say they had obvious in-game injuries. And one is Steve Novak, and the other is, on multiple occasions, Jared Bayless rolling his ankles. Otherwise, if you look at it, you've got guys like MCW. His injury started in-game, he said, but in no sort of way that he immediately had to leave the court, and he played multiple games after. OJ Mayo, we won't even go to where OJ Mayo's most recent injury originated from. Um, then, who else? He came out our own, or our own, the team's coach. I mean, he was coaching with a bad hip. <laughs> I mean, I, it, it, it sounds silly, but it, it really is. Like, it's, these guys carry these injuries, and sometimes they don't say it to the trainer. 
because they want to try to win. They want to try to put the, their best foot out, foot out there, even if they're 80%. That, that sounds funny, but maybe there's a lot more relevance to it than anything because kid says that's an injury from his playing days, so <laughs> why couldn't it have been resolved in the offseason? Yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not going to criticize him for that. I'm just saying, in that same sort of hypothetical sense of where players are playing injured, yeah, you're right, it sounds funny to say it, but it does sort of stand up in line with a lot of the other things. I don't know, it's it's not fun. I'm I'm looking forward to the season ending with everyone hopefully in one piece. And there's a big question mark over that because it happens every year. Season ends and you'll get this list of players then scheduled to have surgery. Mm. We, let's hope the books aren't involved in that because if they are, there'll be a lot of a lot of fingers pointed. Um, I uh, I have a rest stat. I, I just pulled this up and it kind of blew my mind. So I talked about how the Spurs are the the landmark team of of resting. Since 2012, which I be, I'm fairly certain is Kawhi Leonard's entire career, he's played 35 minutes or more 49 times. The big three this season, Giannis, Jabari, and Chris, have played 35 or more minutes a combined 128 times. So Kawhi in four years does it like 12 times-ish a year. Those three have done it, I mean, if you divide that by three, Everyone here knows I'm not a math expert, but that's more than 40 times a player. <laughs> and you're looking at Jabari missed a few games to start the season too and quote-unquote came back slow, not really. So in a, a full year for all three of them, they might have touched 150 on that mark. I mean, that's just ridiculous overplaying right there. And there's no excuse for... Well, there's no depth behind them. That that excuse goes when the team can't make the playoffs anymore because you don't really have something that you have to play those guys for. It's like it's so short-sighted. It's it's as if I, I won't even finish the sentence. But there's next year to think about as well. Just to go out with this sort of attitude of well. Why, why wouldn't we play them heavy minutes? I mean, the games are on the schedule. They're there to be won. Whatever. No, that's it's complete nonsense. you got to be a professional. And th the other thing is, we talk about um, the one that gets thrown back. I, I guess it's pretty much the official line on it from the books. Is, well, these games matter for development. No, they don't, because these are all meaningless games. Why do they need to learn how to play in meaningless games? They, they really don't matter. It reached a point, obviously you don't sort of 20, 30 games out go, okay, it doesn't matter now, let's shut it down. But say the last five games, why don't you say, okay, Giannis, Jabari, Chris, you're not playing again. In fact... You're staying at home. You're you're going to be in Milwaukee. Even when the team goes on the road, you're in Milwaukee. We have Coach A and Coach B assigned to you. And you're actually going to work on stuff in the gym that really matter. So if you're worried about Jabari Parker's defense, well, here's a time of the year where everyone is together. You can get to work on that. And it's like, where is the benefit of him in-game against the Sixers or against the Magic? And particularly, this, this matters because... 
the way the book schedule has played out, they've finished off with a lot of bad teams. It's not like they were testing themselves against teams who really had to win to get into the playoffs or anything that creates that sort of atmosphere environment. It wasn't there. So, to me, there's just been so little to gain in all of this. And that's where my problems that have come from. It just doesn't outweigh the risk. There's no... If we're playing a risk-reward game, there's nothing there to really get benefit from. It's, I don't know what we've learned about the books. We can go, okay, Yanis has triple-doubles. It's been great. Jabari's playing really well. We learned those things a few weeks ago, though. So I don't know why it needed to keep going. One more game. What we're going to move on to... I'm going to say it's something we don't normally do. And that is that a piece came out today in the Racine Journal Times that had some interesting hypotheses hypotheses about the book's ownership, front office, coaching situation. Um, Pinch of Salt is... Not a bad idea for reports of this nature. We we are very liberal with our salt, generally, in these sort of situations. But on this occasion, I felt like, just in terms of a hypothetical, it was interesting enough to talk about. Basically, what it all boils down to is Gary Wolfel is hinting that the off-season will be a time for change for the books. Um, that's ranging from talk about John Hammond's status as GM, which Gary has written about before, along with others. Um, there's definitely been plenty of whispers about that. It's well-known what kids' sort of ultimate goals seem to be. Um, he also talks about an interesting dynamic with Kid that has, I guess, emerged in the last few months. I'm now thinking back to when Woj even gave some information about around the trade deadline and different things. Um, the, the piece in the Racine Journal Times, let me see just to get the exact part of it. To quote Gary Wolfel, I'm told Kidd, who was brought to Milwaukee by one of the team's tri-majority owners and close friend, Mark Lasry, hasn't endeared himself to the rest of the book's ownership group. Some think Kidd's arrogant, some think his heart isn't into coaching, and our Mifty took a portion of the season for hip surgery when he could have done it in the off-season. I now regret that we talked about that, uh, but part of this, and if it's important, I have been vocal in my criticism of Kid throughout the season. And most people who listen will know that. Most people who read us will know that. One thing I've never done is call for Kid to be fired. I've I've never said that because I don't think it's as simple as just weighing up what he's done, his ability, and going just get rid of him. That's the answer. And if there is truth to what we're seeing here, that backs that up even further, and there's a lot more in play here. How dangerous, potentially, could it be if 
as was sort of known from day one, Kid is as closely tied to ownership and then if there's any divisions over Kid within the ownership, more than sort of just assessing Jason Kidd, the coach, that has much more serious implications for the books as an organization. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, it does uh, and it doesn't. I mean, favoritism in, in appointing someone to a role has kind of existed forever. Uh, it's worrying that if that was the, the main reason Kidd was brought in, but at the same time, I mean, you had a guy who, by all NBA-wide accounts, was a talented young head coach who was suddenly available, while the Bucks had, you know, no offense, but Larry Drew. Um, I will say, just on the, the rest of the rumors, uh, I, I guess the report from, from good old Gary, uh, if John Hammond is jettisoned or leaves, which was also something that uh, he had outlined as potential possible uh, situation. And there's a new GM brought in, so saying Jason Kidd doesn't get the GM role, like it sounds like he wants... Uh, it, it's doubtful that Jason Kidd would stay on. Most new GMs really want to pick out their own head coach uh, when they start at Even, a place. Sorry, sorry to cut across you there, but if Kidd wants to be GM... If there was a scenario where Hammond left and they brought in someone else to be over him, Kid might not want to be around of his own volition. It might be a case of this I is a, I thought I was here for something else, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean it's a it's a complicated situation whenever there's no clear boundaries in uh, a leadership structure. And that's exactly what we saw play out in Philadelphia. Um, maybe if allegations are true, I'm, I'm going legalese here. That's a maybe and an if qualifying this statement. But maybe the same sort of favoritism that drove Sam Hinkie out of Philadelphia with the, the Colangelos could be a factor in Milwaukee if there's a, a more than just aptitude reason that kid was brought in and maybe takes a different position or stays on uh, with, with Hammond wanting to leave, as Wolfel reported. I don't know. I mean, this stuff is all really complicated. The Bucks keep a tight lid on everything that comes out of their camps. Uh, if report reports have surfaced here and there, uh, Woj knows everything, and I trust his reports more than anyone else's. And but he hasn't said anything in a few months now. I really have no idea what's going to happen. I don't think anyone really has an idea what the hell is going to happen here. Not even the people who may be involved, which might be a reason why we've heard not much at all from those groups. Um, uh, you can do it, I know You can do about, it. <laughs> uh, I know we talked about the whole GM who's really running this team, what motivations are behind the moves that the team has made in the last 12 to 14 months Probably a little bit more than that now. Um, I feel like the Hammond stuff, that's always going to simmer, considering how kid came here, all this weird stuff that happened in the you know days leading up to him actually being traded with for picks and stuff like that. I feel like that's always going to simmer as long as Jason Kidd and John Hammond are in Milwaukee. 
the bigger thing for me is the issue of this the quote unquote division of ownership and something Woj, like Adam said, Woj talked about a couple months ago. I wrote about it a little bit. And I feel like that is a bigger issue on just kid, not really just kid G, GM or just kid the coach or just kid whatever. It's more of just kid and his influence on the team and his ties to the ownership. We all know that their friendship and their relationship with the team or with uh, Lazarus in particular. And that really drove the move to for him to come here, obviously. And there, it was a way out to get out of Brooklyn, which we know. I feel like that whole thing—it's called like a power play at the at that point. I think anybody, even kids, saw the writing on the wall. The team had no future. They they had old veterans. They had team. I mean, that was going to be the best year that they had at the time that kid was there, and he decided, "Hey, I, I'm going to try to go for it." And like, I know I have this in the bag if I want to do it. So. It's not. A, it's it wasn't a, a dumb move by him on any means, but I feel like at this point, it just seems like kid has a lot to prove. And this season, I feel like they we're talking about it's gonna be a developing year. You know, kid and Hammond kind of were on the same page before the season start, even though a lot of fans I don't think really agree with it. That it's gonna take time. It's gonna take time to develop. We have two young guys. Along with Monroe and Middleton is even you know a young guy himself and trying to get things together, but more questions have been are popping up than answers at this point. And a big question is is kid the right guy to lead this team in whatever capacity? I I'm not going to speculate if he is you know this <laughs> Darth Vader like figure <laughs> running this team or something or you you know what I mean? But um. I just feel like it's a necessary question for the ownership to ask because, I mean, as we are seeing with this Philadelphia situation, not a lot of people really know what they basketball. They trust people that they have, you know, have ties to all this stuff, and sometimes that doesn't work. And they, they, when they think the writing's on the wall or it's not working in other capacities, whether it's like a financial situation or whatever. They try to get out of it and go another direction. I feel like that could be a play here. It's too early to decide. The team is still at a position where they're still at the ground floor of what everything that they're trying to do. But it's still a necessary question for I these whoever is raising these questions to ask because it's a very important thing. These guys want to win. They said it from day one when they got here, you know, around two years ago this time, so I, I'm not concerned, but it is, I don't know, the more these fla these flares keep coming up, like I, I said with Woj, like, you know, keep saying worried, you know, danger, danger kind of thing, I feel like it's going to get bumpier and bumpier the more that, that this goes on and there isn't this power structure that we know other teams are very clear on, like the Spurs or these great teams. I, it's always going to persist until something, you know, breaks. Like I feel like all of this is related now, and from the moving forward, from the smallest decision to the biggest decision, there can be massive repercussions. And this is just 
it's a natural consequence of when you allow the lines to get blurred in the first place between who does what and who makes what decision. Because if there is a place where there's any sort of division, it doesn't have to be as severe as maybe we've heard reported from various outlets. If there's any division in the ownership, any difference in feeling in terms of how kid is doing, if he's the right guy for the future, what his role should be, you start to sort of naturally, it's human nature, fall into this this scenario where you're taking sides. So it comes to draft night, and let's say Hammond has a guy he wants and Kidd has a guy he wants, and then it becomes less and less about the basketball decisions and who's the right guy, and it goes to ownership, and you've got, well, I'm in Kidd's camp, I'm in Hammond's camp, and nothing good can come out of that. So that's really where it worries me from even the smallest part. If there's any split in ownership on kid in any way, really, to any degree, it starts to sort of filter down and impact other decisions. And if there was sort of tighter control kept over this in the first place, it doesn't matter. Because if kid is just the head coach and there's a, a division feeling on kid, that's fine. He's the coach. That's all he is. That's all that impacts. A lot of coaches, it might seem strange, but they don't really have massive input into personnel. Obviously, it'll be discussed, it'll be run by them, but there's a lot of strong general managers in the NBA who they're given that power by their owners and they will make the decisions they see fit. And the coach is someone who has been brought in by them and the ownership to make the pieces work rather than vice versa. And I think that's the interesting dynamic we're in in Milwaukee is we don't really know what way it is. You can't say Kid is the coach that was brought in with a view to let's make Giannis, Jabari, Middleton, Michael Carter-Williams, let's make them all tick. And a lot of the moves in the time since have shown that it's more the other way. They're looking at getting talent that fits kid's eye. And that's the opposite to how a team should really be built. That's not how winning teams are built. You don't generally get your coach and then build a roster around them. The coach might come first. He might sort of set down a style. But it feels like there's more to it in the way kids doing things. I'm sort of at a loss to put a finger on where this might all end. I, for, for example, the Hammond talk is there a long time. Before any of this talk about maybe disagreements amongst the ownership on kid, the Hammond talk has been there. And let's be honest, John Hammond is around the league in various capacities for a long time, has been very successful. He might just decide... I don't really need this. I don't need all this trouble. I'll go somewhere else. I'll go somewhere else where I'll have, I guess, less people to answer to. It'll be more my input that's that's valued above anyone else's. And I don't really mind the situation's worse. I'll just, at this point in my career, and he's around a long time, I want a job where I could try to build a team in my vision and... I don't have to deal with constant rumors over, is my job safe? Am I really making decisions? Because at a point, let's say the books hit a home run in the draft. 
let's say they hit much better than they've ever done before. They find a player better than Giannis. John Hammond as general manager. Is he going to be credited with that pick? Because right now, people are quick to go, oh, Jason Kidd makes all the decisions. So, what happens then when a decision goes really well? If Greg Monroe was a masterstroke, do people go, oh, Kidd made that decision and Kidd's the right. Kidd's the man who should make all the decisions. Or at what point does that flip back around? And that's the point where it becomes a losing battle for Hammond in some senses the longer this talk goes on, even if it was baseless. It just... For him, it doesn't do much good. So that's that brings uncertainties into it for me. And if he was to go, I honestly don't know where it goes from there. I'd love to think that if he goes, we'd see a new general manager come in. But I'm not sold on that. Unless the divisions are really, really deep amongst the owners already, I think Kid would get his shot. In that hypothetical world, what what would you guys say is the next step? Do you believe that they would give Kid that opportunity, or would they look for someone else? I mean, I would I would hope they don't, right? I mean, if if we are giving Kid the credit for the stuff that's happened since he's came on board in terms of personnel moves, outside of the Dudley trade, which I believe the first Dudley trade, which I believe happened soon after he came in, I could be wrong on that. But outside of that one trade, it's pretty much been all negative. Um, I mean, we look at, you know, Brandon Knight wouldn't have been a good fit on this team, but I, Michael Carter-Williams might not be a fit on, on an NBA team. And I'm not saying he, he is or isn't. I think he's got talent. But in the modern NBA, to be a point guard who can't shoot and who can't do the things Giannis can do is really tough. Um, so there you have that trade. There's a lot of other trades, too. I, I won't even go into all of them again because we're spending like a broken record. Talking about that Dudley one, though, because it's interesting to think about that, because that was a trade that, before Dudley actually became meaningful, the books won because they got the pick. Yeah. The difference with all the trades since, pretty much, has been, and I think this is where a lot of people tie it to kid, they're personnel-driven trades. It's not about finding assets or the best deal possible. It's more like players have been targeted in one form or another and that's what the end goal is and that that sounds like if you were to try and describe well what would a coach making general manager style decisions actually do well that's what they do they try to find the players that they felt most comfortable with coaching and they'd pay little attention to what was coming back because it's all about the players for them that's their day-to-day might be involved in the other stuff, but as a coach, coach isn't going to plan for four years down the line, I want my salary cap situation to look like that. I want to have this many picks. I want to be able to do this. That doesn't factor into it. So when you give a coach that power, it gets messy. And that's why even the guys who are doing the sort of double jobbing, the dual roles of whether it's president of basketball operations or general manager, and head coach. All the good ones have someone We're down else. We're down to just one now, aren't we? No. Hawks. Who's there besides Stan Van Gundy? Hawks. Oh, Hawks. Spurs. Hawk. Not, I wouldn't count Spurs anymore. He is. He's the president of basketball operations, isn't he? I believe so. 
I think he, I mean, RCB Buford is the yeah. GM now. Yeah, but that's really. I mean, my my example for that is look. He yeah. used to literally have both jobs. Like if if Greg Popovich didn't think he could be a coach and a general manager, what makes any other coach think that they can? Like Greg Popovich said, I I don't want to do all this. Let's bring on RC Buford, and no, that's what happened. RC Buford's been there a long time now. I'm pretty sure I looked this up, and that's how I, I think. Popovich used to be GM. I'm not. I'm not sure on that one, but like I, I feel like a lot of that gets overlooked, as in, in Detroit. Sure, Stan does both jobs. Jeff Bauer is a general manager though, mm-hmm. and he's very, very experienced. In Atlanta, Wes Wilcox is the general manager, even though Bud wears both hats. Technically, like that's a really common thread. I think one of the ones where that held out longer than any of the others was in LA with Doc, um, where he really was sort of running solo for quite a while, and that didn't particularly go very well. I don't know. There's just there's real dangers to that line being blurred, and I do feel like a lot of the deals they scream a coach making personnel decisions rather than an executive. We talked already about minutes. There's not a lot on kid's resume, full stop, that sort of spells out anything other than short-sightedness. There might be... Um, You could point to maybe um, a desire to develop young talent, including, say, Michael Carter-Williams, even if that was his call to trade, but... Not a lot else. Popovich was the GM of the Spurs before he was the head coach of the Spurs. In 94, he was the GM. In 97, he fired Bob Hill after a horrible start, named himself coach. And in 2002, he relinquished the GM job to R.C. Buford. So if Greg Popovich said, yeah, I think this is too much, I'm going to name a real GM, there's no coach that should be doing it. He's the best, and we all know this. My other thing was that if you lose a trade to Doc Rivers, you should be fired immediately. Doc Rivers is maybe the worst trader we've seen since Billy King. He gave up Lance Stevenson on a first-round pick for Jeff Green. Like, there's been two or three years in a row now where a team added Jeff Green to make a stretch run, and it didn't work, and he did it anyway. He's a horrible, a horrible at trading. If you had lost a trade with Doc Rivers, you should just be done. That's that's a prime example once again of that's just a coach. That's a coach thinking. He's like, yeah, I need I need a stretch four. Who can I get? Uh, Jeff Green. Uh, that worked well for me in Boston. I'll go get Jeff Green. It'll all be okay. You know, it's just like there's no there's no long term picture considered there. It's just like, let's make this move now because I have to make this move now. I have to do something. If I don't do something as an executive, well, then I'm open to criticism as a coach because the team won't be as good. It's sort of, there's nearly a conflict of interest, even though you have the same end goal. It's a strange one. If, let's play the hypothetical, if Hammond was to go, Kid was to take over a general manager's role. 
Would you feel more comfortable with that if he was solely general manager, if he moved upstairs and they got a head coach in? I have yeah. zero comfort in that either way. I, 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 I don't I, like the idea of him as head coach, but or as, well, <laughs> I don't like the idea of him as general manager, but... I prefer him as just general manager to, like at that point he's making the decisions and he's trying to coach at the same time. And if he, you'll probably lose out in both departments. His best chance of actually becoming a good general manager would be if he was one and he had the time to learn and really devote his attention to it. Like, you know, spreading yourself that thin doesn't seem like it's sort of setting things up for great success. Um, I may. Uh, I'll stick myself on a limb here and may uh, be the dark horse or not dark horse uh, I don't know, whatever um, The black sheep The black sheep, there we go Since he's come to Milwaukee we've always heard this Jason Kidd effect like these players really respond to him and obviously this season has not gone playing we've talked about this endless amount of times but the players still respond very well to Jason Kidd, even when things aren't going the greatest. And I feel like even what we saw with like Middleton, we signed with the team, Monroe in the press conference, he still, even when he was going through spells of being coming off the bench, all this stuff, he was still responding. He was still to, you know, talking to Jason Kidd's praise. And a lot of that, it is just to keep make things happy, don't go against company line, all this stuff. But I feel like that is, there is something to that. And say what you will about Jason Kidd, we've obviously been talking <laughs> negatives about him or stuff that we don't really, aren't really uh, warmed, to the, warmed up to some things that he's done. But he does have a sway. He, he is a name around the league. These players are still, even though they're really young, they play. They see him play. They see him around the league for a long time. All this stuff, and that might be enough for people to just trust him and say, "I feel like he's going to put me in the best position to succeed." Whether that happens or not, it did happen this year clearly. But I feel like that goes a long way. And if he, it, it doesn't go with just players too. I mean, I, you know, we saw last week. Uh, Kevin Arnovitz is a really good piece on these coaches that are on the bubble. They they could you know come on the scene very close. Sean Sweeney was one of those guys. Kid saw something in him uh, when he was in Brooklyn. He after the whole Lawrence Frank, the, you know where the team was at, all this stuff. He gave him a chance to sit on the bench, and I'm not gonna say Sean Sweeney was the reason why Brooklyn turned it around. It he clearly wasn't that you know that kind of uh, figure, but he did have their defense that we've seen in flashes this year, and for the most of this, or last season, he did have a big effect on that. And he's a young guy, and he just needs time, like players do. Coaches need time to develop. Even Jason Kidd, he has played for a long time in the NBA. He's still a young coach. This is his third season. It's a different than just playing out there and telling him, you know, just telling what to guys could. What drawing out plays for guys uh, to do, you know, win a game or whatever. 
things take time, and I don't know. I, he does have a good basketball mind, in my sense. Sometimes I don't disagree or don't agree with decisions. I haven't really agreed with a lot of decisions this year, to be honest. But he does have a sway. There's, there's something that people react to positively, and I don't know. It's I feel like if he did have a distinct position of whether it's coach or GM, I feel like that's better than where this kind of purgatory, what is he, what is he not, or all this stuff. I feel like that would be a lot better than where we are right now. So, Let me play devil's advocate with that idea. Kid definitely surrounds himself with a lot of young players and then even young coaches, you put it. And they do respond well to him, but part of me wonders is a key factor in that that they don't know a whole lot different. A very big percentage of this book's roster. Jason Kidd is, if not their only coach, he's the coach now for the majority of their careers. They probably feel indebted to him for any progress they have made. That's sort of natural. I feel like that might factor into that a little bit. It's, I mean, you don't know that the grass is greener on the other side until you actually see the grass. And I wonder if that might factor into that. And I guess that even spills over into the coaching staff a little bit. I mean, Sweeney, he has he has some experience um, outside the NBA before that, but even in the league... Obviously, he's very loyal to Kid, but Kid is what he knows in terms of working with. And in that whole context, it becomes really interesting that guys like Zaza, Ersan, and Dudley all ended up elsewhere last summer. And there were, there were plenty of people who mentioned that at the time. It felt like a move where Kid had full control over the locker room, or there was, there was no other voices where we all pointed to, oh, Dudley this great leader and he was he was so important for talking on defense maybe in other ways the, the organization didn't feel it was beneficial to have someone who was maybe quite as vocal or quite as influential or maybe impressionable would be the word to put across on huh? that's purely playing devil's advocate with it but I feel like there is there's definitely a case to point to people who react well to Jason Kidd, just whether it's coincidence or not, it feels like there's a strange connection with most of them, that the, the people who Kidd gets the best out of tend to be those who haven't really experienced play under someone else. Like, we don't have any sort of line to measure them against. Mm -hmm. I don't want to go, Yanis under Larry Drew was like this compared to Kidd, because it's not a comparison. With those young guys, there's no real... We don't have one player to even make that real comparison with. Yeah. I mean, even... It was a couple of weeks ago, Mark Lazar, he was on a, you know interview, and he even said, you know, the, veter the loss of veterans clearly had an effect on the team. Whether that was... It wasn't even just results. It was clearly just having nowhere to go on defense, just morale, all this stuff that we kind of overlook unless it, something comes out that the locker room is in good shape or something like that. 
Um, so yeah, I definitely agree. He does. There again, there's such a young team, and they're you know getting the shots that you know. Let's for example, like Tyler Ennis, he clear you know he was drafted from Phoenix to get a lot of playing time. Comes from Milwaukee. He started right away because of MCW's injury, like when the trade happened, and he's. Yes, he hasn't had time, you know, weird spells of not having time, but he is getting more playing time there where he wasn't, you know, a year ago at this point. So, I don't know. It's it's such a whole ball of yarn that it's not fun to unravel. But it's, 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 not, it's not fun to unravel. The, the only reason I think we owe it to ourselves to any sort of real <laughs> conversation about the books. You you have to address this. You can't pretend everything is is great. You can't sort of blindly follow. You've got to. It's part of appreciating what's good about the team, what's great about the team's future, and then hoping that they stay on top of that and they make it even better as they go along. You've got to sort of critically assess things. It's not an agenda on anyone's part when this happens and there's a lot of people who are quick to go that route but you've got to take a closer look at this if these red flags as you put it earlier and if they keep coming up you've got to talk about it yeah. um, it doesn't matter who the source was this time there's been a lot of smoke coming from various parts of the building so at some point you've got to think there might be a fire and I think it's doing a disservice to just ignore that so all hypotheticals. Let's hope it doesn't come to pass. Let's hope Jason Kidd's the right coach. Everything goes well. John Ham John Hammond is the right GM, and they work perfectly together. But as long as the rumors keep coming up every now and then, we're going to talk about them. You have to. Moving on from books politics, which is which is what it is. We're going to have to get a political correspondent behind the book pass. Um, moving on from all of that fun and games, just a little, I suppose, because we're going to talk about the book style of play and particularly a comment Jason Kidd made during the week that got quite a few people a little hot under the collar on books Twitter. I think I'm sensing a theme with tonight's episode. Just, just, just a theme. <laughs> Everybody's pissed off. That's the theme. Except, I mean, yeah. I'm not. Honestly, I'm not that pissed off. It's, I don't. It's game 81, man. Like, I, the I, rest I agree. Sucks, but the, the things, the, yeah, I'm, that's. I'm worn down. I think we all agree minutes is something worthy of getting annoyed about. The other stuff is worth talking about, but I don't feel like any of us are as annoyed as 90% of everyone else is. I'll say that in my second year covering this team, I didn't realize last year how lucky I was to have a playoff run. You know, people people make fun of the, the eight-seed culture. For, for a blog and for people who talk about the team every day, the eight-seed culture is nice. It's fun. <laughs> you don't have crushing loads of losing yeah, the good. final. You're just you. You don't have all of this stuff. It's it's not the worst spot, really. It's it's not as bad as people make it out to be. So something to be said for that eight seed spot. Um, just while we're on the the subject of people getting too mad about stuff, 
can we stop viscerally hating Greg Monroe? And I don't mean we as an us three. I mean we as a, a fan base. Like I, that's why I wrote my piece. In part, why I wrote my piece, I wrote I don't know like a week ago, where you know as as much as we like to to pick apart roster moves because it's literally what we do. You know the Greg Monroe signing made sense on both sides last summer, and I don't think you can you can argue Greg Monroe wanted to go to a young team and win a playoff series or get there, which he has never done. And you know the Bucks. If if you're a team who had sucked for a while, you had one fairly decent year, and probably the prettiest free agent not named LeBron James, at least up there, Greg Monroe was, comes to you with interest and you have a connection. Really, you think the Bucks are going to be like, nah, pass. 25-year-old center who's very good at, at uh, doing the things that our centers couldn't do will pass. I mean, it's it's. I don't. I think you know. In in hindsight, which is 2020, you can say, yeah, the fit's not there. But why not try it out? It didn't work. It's 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 time to move on. I think it's a, a bigger mistake if he's brought back. But I I can't bring myself to hate Greg Monroe because. You know the the signing didn't work out and the fit's not there and you can talk about effort level which has been a fairly legitimate concern over the past month or I don't know what how much time I, I don't hate Greg Monroe as a person or really as a basketball player he just doesn't fit here he, he's never gonna fit with Giannis and Jabari unless they magically start shooting really well but he he's not a terrible person I agree completely with the signing was right at the time. And, I don't know, maybe both of you will remember this. I was quite against the idea of Monroe from back when we were talking about free agent prospects. I didn't think it was a great fit at all. Um, even last year, to be honest, I think as a trio, we were focused even then on defensive point guards. And that's, that's how we sort of saw it as the need, and that's what's proven to be. The one problem is that Greg Monroe isn't making it easy for fans not to get him as back. The effort is, at the end of the day, this guy is getting paid a lot of money to play basketball for the books, and whether he doesn't fit or not, they're playing him, and the effort isn't always there. And that's, to me, that's when people really sort of turned, and turned quickly, because think back to... Around the time of the trade deadline, where I was all for trading Greg Monroe, and any time I'd write a piece suggesting it, there would be an army of people there to fight it off. It's, why are you trying to trade Greg Monroe? It's, it's like, what what is all the talk about Greg Monroe? Why Greg Monroe should still be here? All of that sort of stuff was there, and it has gone completely since then, because we've seen a different Greg Monroe post-All-Star break. He's had too many games where he scores eight points and has two rebounds. He, his defense was actually so much better than we expected it to be. It wasn't the problem. The team's defense wasn't good, but it wasn't individually sort of easily identifiable by numbers as Greg Monroe's early in the season. That has changed. His defense has gone pretty bad. And whether you look at the numbers or use the eye test, that's clear now. It's in the game against the Magic, Dwayne Dedman got so many easy baskets early on. And he contained Monroe so easy on the other end that it's like, people are going to get upset about that. God knows, books fans are getting upset about a lot less at the moment. So they definitely are going to feel a little bit annoyed about that. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I see where you, I see where you're coming from, but it's like even with the effort level dropping off, even with him playing, I think 500 less minutes than you know Chris and uh, Giannis. Yeah, around 500 minutes less than most. He leads the team in player efficiency rating, wins added, and win shares per 48 minutes. I mean, he's he's not been a bad player. He hasn't fit, but he he hasn't had a horrible season. I think that's. Revisionist and wrong history. Nah, I disagree. I can't. I can't just based on. I'm. I'm not someone who will base everything on either what I see or what the numbers tell me. I like to combine the two. And as much as all of that sounds really good, I. I can't say he's had a good season. I think the first half of the season was perfectly fine. It was. It was good. That's when double doubles were pretty much a nightly thing for him and even if it wasn't working out for the books in terms of results he was there, he was pulling his weight he was showing what he could do that isn't what we've seen in the last two, two and a half months of the season since the All-Star break really I, I couldn't call this a good season from Greg Monroe overall because I don't, I don't feel like he's gone the whole season, was he good very good for parts of the season, yes and early on in the year particularly he was one of the better books the fit, sure, that hasn't worked, but I think his his performance personally has taken such a nosedive that I I find it hard to call his season good, even sort of removing it from any sort of books performance context. Mm. I don't I don't know I. Once again, you guys notice if you're listening, you probably notice by now. I am not a Greg Monroe fan. Um, I was a much bigger Greg Monroe fan as the season has gone on. I don't dislike him as a person, most definitely. Um, as a player, he's just the wrong fit. Can I see that he's not playing like he was earlier in the year? Definitely. And if I'm honest, I talk about Greg Monroe a lot less than I used to for that reason, because I feel like I don't have a whole lot good to say in recent months. And you're right, it doesn't need to be vitriolic, and I feel like that's rare that there's any sort of real... People hate him. People really I, I don't hate see him. that. I, he, gets, he gets mocked a lot, very openly. I, I don't know if that's unfair for a lot of it. I think it's too much. I think it's too much on John Henson, too. I'm sick of seeing $44 million John Henson tweets. If someone offered you $44 million to play basketball, you'd take it, too. Stop blaming John Henson for having a good agent and for being a good basketball player. Stop blaming John Henson for not getting minutes, even when he plays well. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, the, one, that's the one on the Henson. We, we talk about everyone else's minutes. We still haven't seen Henson as a starter. I don't know why this is never going to happen. Um... It's just going to drive everyone mad eventually because everyone gets so sick of talking about it with different coaches, different players. But for whatever reason, that just doesn't happen. I feel like everybody's relationship with Henson is going to be polarizing because, like you said, he hasn't cracked the starting job. I mean, even last year he started for the Bucks, and I think they did pretty well. Like against, I, mean, I don't have the numbers in front of me. But just how he plays, like, you know, some games he'll rack up fouls. And, like, you know, yesterday, for example, 
he racked up two fouls in two minutes, like right when he got in the game. And of course, you see tweets like this, you know, the forty-four million, which it's funny, but it's also dumb at the same time. Uh, and but at the same time, you see him during the game. He was probably the only thing that was really driving the Bucks to probably s- still like being in the game. He had eighteen he was, and ten against the Sixers, right? Yeah. Against Nerola Zoel, who was not having a good job. He was not defending him whatsoever. I was tweeting the game, and Hedson was going at him hard, and he was you could just see the smile on his face after every basket. Like, he is, I feel, and the other thing, too, he wears his emotions on his sleeve. When he gets called for a goaltending, he, you know, smiles like a kid, like he knows what he did wrong, like all this stuff. He, that is, it's so, like, I don't know, it, jumps off the page with him, and it rubs people the wrong way, it tickles other people like me, because I think it's funny. <laughs> I think that's a, a slightly new wrinkle to his game. I don't know if you agree. He, his face always told he's, a lot. Uh, but I feel like he's, he's he sort of, his personality is more dominant on the court. Maybe that's just the guys around him. But this is something which applies to Middleton as well. Middleton's seen more emotional than ever this year, and off-season, we did a lot of talk about who are the guys who are going to step up into leadership roles. It's funny, the way Henson carries himself, he carries himself as a senior figure, which he is now. He, Middleton, the same. Middleton, for like the quietest guy in the court, I'm pretty sure he still leads the books in technical fouls. And there's been a few occasions this year where Middleton has really sort of got mad. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's interesting, I just find the way. But Henson in particular is someone I feel his demeanor has changed a little this year. Like, I don't think last year's John Henson has the Matt Barnes incident. <laughs> it, it takes a, it takes a different sort of guy to, <laughs> to, like, go all the way with that and to, to really sort of milk it for what it's worth. Do you, do you, both of you have been watching Henson longer than me. Do you feel like... It's always been in him. I feel like it's come to a new level this year. I think Zaza rubbed off on him. Or should I say Jaja? <laughs> Channeling my Gus Jordan. Um, I feel like it's always been there, but it's definitely like he's hulked out in his emotions. Like, you know, obviously the Matt Barnes incident. There's very things like if he just turns over the ball, you just see him kind of, you know, Maybe kind of get angry at himself and like hit, you know, kind of stuff like that. Like, I don't know. I feel like it's been more than usual. And again, it, sometimes it, it, it frustrates people, and sometimes it's. I feel like that's just how people are in the game. Oh, the, the, game. the books. The books need more guys like that. Oh yeah, definitely. That's like when you look at that. Let's not act Barnes. like. There's Steve. Sorry. No, the, the Matt Barnes incident. There were times earlier in the season where someone needed. Where the books need someone to do things like that. Like we, we had OJ Mayo show his emotion in different ways. It, he took it too far. He went too far. He just has a different style about it even. It's it's like there might be the same thought process goes through, but OJ executes it in a very different way. But there are times earlier in the season where what Henson does is something that the books missed when he was injured. Yeah. That that has its own value. It's funny that he gets so little time and 
that brings back to, I suppose, not to go back there, but who's making the decisions? Because who paid him $44 million to then not play him a whole lot? That's a strange, strange, strange. Like everything with the books, it's just strange. Yeah, I mean, we've all liked what we've seen from Miles Plumley this year, but he's an unrestricted free agent who's making, like, what, $2 million or something? End of a rookie deal. No, he is restricted, but he's on the end of a rookie deal. Um, why would you not play the guy who's about – he hasn't started making it yet, I don't think, but who's about to make $44 million. Why would you not play that guy over Miles Plumley? It's it's some questionable things going on, and you can say, oh, well, we want – you know, well, Plumley's been better lately. Well, who cares? You know, you're not even touching 40 wins this season. It doesn't matter. 44 million is funny because Plumlee could get close to 40 million this summer as well. <laughs> so, oh, I, I don't disagree. I think he's going to get... If Plumlee gets a four-year deal, he's going to be very close to 44 million. <laughs> it's like, well, what is the point of all these jokes anyway? I'm going to move I, us on. I wouldn't I be surprised if he went to start somewhere. Sorry? Uh, yeah, I didn't know you were going to move on. I no, wouldn't be surprised on, if he went to start somewhere. He could be a starting center, I think. Could be in Milwaukee. Maybe should be. Not with that Henson contract. We've talked about this savvy issue before. How many starting centers does this team need? hundred. <laughs> definitely more than it has. Yeah. Um, are we going to are we going to call up the Phillies we could, soon? We, like, we need one, more centers. If we could find one starting center who we could confidently say was the starting center. That would that would do it for me. Moving on. I moved on to this about twenty five minutes ago. There were some comments this week. For uh, those of you who we did, it, uh, no, we didn't get to this. Matt Velasquez, great writer over at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, wrote a piece, and I think it was after one of the games. Um, it was after a Celtics game. Yeah. After a Celtics game, he, he wrote a piece which featured some Jason Kidd quotes. Let me read them out first, and then we'll talk about it. In response to Giannis and Jabari making some trees, Jason Kidd said... We tried the 90s basketball, and it wasn't working. The process for Jabari and Giannis, we didn't have them shoot trees last year, and we found a way to win, and we were successful. The game is changing quickly. The three-pointer is becoming more important than layups. You've got to look at those guys shooting, and they're going to continue to shoot more trees. We're encouraging that, and I think you'll see that they're comfortable shooting. First question. Does Jason Kidd need to work on actually distinguishing his sarcasm voice? Or is this a genuine thing? I, I hate playing Jason Kidd mind games because I feel like I lose no matter what. But the reason <laughs> the reason we all have to play this game is because he says everything in the same deadpan voice. So there's no way of telling. It's like, is that a joke? It's like... People nervously laugh, and he could look at them like, I just, what are you laughing at? It's, it's real, and vice versa. It's like, why aren't you laughing? You, there's no way of knowing with kid. It's, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll just assume it's serious and go Polifact. They won all their games when they were playing Brandon Knight, Jared Dudley, and Ersan Ilyasova, plus Chris Middleton a lot of minutes. They, they had all four of those guys, and Dudley was hurt for some of it, but before the All-Star break, 
Actually, I think Dudley was healthy for most of it. But uh, they had four good shooters who were all strong from beyond the arc, and that's why they won all those games before the All-Star break. They got rid of one shooter a night, and Dudley was hurt more since the All-Star break, and I think Bayless was too, and they lost a lot more games. I mean, it's it's they, they uh, you need shooting. It's 2015-16. Now it's 2016. But that's the season we're in, almost over, thankfully. You need I, shooting now. It's it's a zero-sum game. See, the thing with this is it's easy to take all of these as jokes, but then we all assumed earlier in the season he made a joke about the team not trying to shoot three-pointers. Everyone said, oh, he's joking. Look, he, he knows. He's ahead of the game. By then saying we tried the 90s basketball and it wasn't working... Rather than the boat being two jokes, they could actually both be serious statements. And it's just nobody took that at face value at the time. For me, if he's referring to last year, I don't feel like last year was 90s basketball. As Ty said, there were shooters. Like what what is he terming as 90s basketball? Having an old fashioned center. Having good players? Even even I don't feel like the way they were playing with Zaza last year was an old fashioned 90 center because Zaza did so much in terms of passing within the offense that isn't quite as 90s. Uh, th- I find that interesting. That to us, the part is that I find most concerning is that the three pointer is becoming more important than layups. The three pointer is insanely important. Nothing ever a layup is the easiest shot you get. It's like. I don't feel like anything ever really surpasses the layup. Sure, you should want to mix the two. If you can make your game all three-pointers and all layups or dunks, that's been the, the Houston Rockets model for a year. That's what Daryl Morey's looked to do. That's what's generally perceived to be efficient basketball. That's ideal. The Warriors get a lot of layups. They might be. You might think of them as, oh, the three-point shooting Warriors, the Splash Brothers whatever, pretty much 90% of the roster can shoot from three. They make a lot of layups. It's it, That's sort of a really core part of the game. So for me, that even was strange. I just don't know, and I wrote about this, I don't know, recent, recently enough. It was actually it was after the hinky fire. I feel like I've written this piece in different ways, like five or six times now. And all I want is for the books to stop caring about everyone else and figure their own game out. Just do whatever. It doesn't have to be... This to me sounds like, well, three-pointers is becoming more important than layups. Let's become a three-point shooting team, and that's all we do. That's what we're about. You don't have to just be about one thing. Just build a team. You've you've got Yanis, Jabari, Middleton. Find other players who you like their fit. You feel you can work them into a system. And then you'll sort of define your own style. The Warriors weren't built for the purpose of being this three-point shooting small ball monster. Completely the opposite. Draymond Green wasn't drafted to play time at center. That's just what happened. That's the identity the team built for themselves. It's like the books just seem so blind to this concept. It's like they want everything to fit in these sort of sort of square square pegs in, in square slots. It's like it just doesn't work like that. Just Figure it out as you go along is, is part of what makes a great team great. You can't just have this plan and rigidly stick to it. That's I'll my, say that's from, my tangent. From a Bucks perspective, I mean, the Bucks largely weren't that good in the 90s, so 
maybe the nineties basketball he's just making up for lost time kind of thing. I don't know. Maybe I think maybe he's just reminiscing back to when he was good. Nineties basketball when Jason Kidd won games. It's, you're not the first one to say that. There's definitely that's something that's worrying a lot of Bucks fans is that I don't know Jason Kidd is living out his last remaining NBA playing fantasies through the Bucks. Um, Maybe for the last game he's gonna bleach his hair again. I don't know. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> There's not a lot of hair to bleach there. You'd have to, you'd have to yeah, go Nick. sort of Carlos Boozer with the bleach. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. He's gonna come out, come out to listen to like Limp Biscuit or 98 Degrees <laughs> or oh. something. But let Fred Durst coach the books is basically what I said. Oh, hashtag oh, Fred Durst. <laughs> hashtag Fred Durst, yes. Hashtag Fred Durst, no. I'm blocking anyone who does hashtag Fred Durst, yes. <laughs> I can think so of a couple of people who are likely to do that. Um, I'm doing watch. it right now. <laughs> I, um, I'm going to give a big shout out before I forget. We got literally a handful. I think I got five tweets after last week's podcast with hashtag major cat and I love each and every one of you people keep the movement alive we will not be defeated major cat is Jabari Parker's nickname and will be going forward decided the moment John McLaughlin said it it was decided so keep the major cat movement going through the off season random days I don't care it's a day in July Hashtag Major Cat. You know what to do. Predictions. Or should I say prediction. This is our very last trip to our little prediction. I don't know what we're going to do. We'll lose half the podcast. Um, we can't afford to, to lose any more time. I mean, we don't, we don't go long enough to be able to shed time from our podcast. The leaderboard... To date, through 81 games, Mike Helm, 57-24, our champion. He even got books by one against the Sixers. He's a sick, sick man. 781 point differential. In second place, Jordan Tresky, 51 and 30, 882 point differential. Considering how Jordan started the season, it's a remarkable record. Because Jordan was bad. I mean, really bad. I think you were five games, six games below 500 at one point. So, well done, Jordan. Just to win Casey. Bring that <laughs> oh. team back. We traded Rudy Gay. I'm back. <laughs> Thanks, Jordan. Uh, in third place, it's me. Myself and Ty are now tied for record. 48 and 33. Oh, this Pacers game is big. Uh, we're going to both pick the same thing. so. <laughs> um, and Not necessarily. Pacers have wrapped it up. Did you watch the Magic game tonight? I did. <laughs> <laughs> no Oladipo. No Nikola Vucevic. Who else? No Aaron Gordon. Yeah. Um, anyway, we're both at 48 and 33, 787 point differential for me. I am working on making up that six point differential on Mike Helm. I'll be very upset. I pick before him. If he picks something 
that doesn't allow me the chance to make up the six point differential. I'm gonna be upset because I'd like to finish. Like How would he not? I think I'll have to go big and just hope I get lucky. Um, anyway, I'm 787 points. Ty is on 839. One game remaining. Wednesday, Indiana Pacers come to the Bradley Center to finish the season off. What are our predictions? I gotta do it, Bucks by a two. I have no choice. I'm not playing for the tie here because it's a loss. Because Adam counts point differential, so Bucks by two. Ties onto my game. I'll quickly follow that up with Pacers by twelve. I know you're all gonna be rushing back next week just to just to see who came out on top in the battle for the bottom between me and Ty. Who knows? Maybe even Ty will come they back don't, next they week could, to find out. They could just watch the game on Wednesday. It's not the same. They need the reactions. Jordan. I'm going to go in between <laughs> and say Pacers by five. Okay. Mailbag time. The mailbag is colossal this week um, under normal circumstances I probably would have excluded some of these but seeing as it's our 50th episode and a lot of you have been listening to us for the bulk of that as a special thank you we are going to go to all of these mailbag questions those of you who haven't been listening long don't send in mailbag questions I apologise Please listen again. Um, but we've got questions to go through. First one. From Ask Metastic, who is bringing a common theme to his questions week on week now. Which would you rather have a point guard? A regressed shooting ability Ricky Rubio... Oh. Our modern Jason Kidd as a player slash coach slash GM. <laughs> Ricky Rubio. Give me Rubio. A regressed shooting ability Rubio. What is he shooting? Minus 10%? I don't care, man. Anything to keep Jason Kidd out the GM spot. I, and I, the I, I hate Rubio. myself saying this, but I'll take Jason Kidd. I'll you know take, he just had hip surgery, right? I'll take our 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 ruler, Jason Kidd, in that scenario. Will um, as terrifying as that is, I do not want Ricky Rubio upsets me at the moment. I know it's it's just when I hear the name, it's like it makes your skin crawl. It's like a red rag to a bull right now. I don't know what that is, but it just think, Ricky Rubio's think, upsetting me, and I'm going to. How bad it is! I'm gonna take player coach slash GM Jason Kidd. I think reduced shooting ability Ricky Rubio would just shoot undefined, like it wouldn't even be a percentage because you can't divide by zero and stuff. Any, any have you got anything else to add on that, Jordan? You all do? I'll uh, I'll go with Jason Kidd just for the fact that I want to see bleach Jason Kidd again. <laughs> Just get that okay. back in there again. 
Hashtag Bleach Jason Kidd, yes. Oh, no. Bleach Jason Kidd, no. Um, at Metastic, what off-season move could the books make that will drive you insane? Brackets, besides Rubio, please take him. It is your destiny. <laughs> I think we already covered this. Did we? Yeah, in the what if Jason Kidd becomes GM and coach section, I think we already covered this. In terms of personnel offseason move, though? Um, not trading Greg Monroe. think you're going to be insane by the end of the summer, then. Yeah. Who says I'm already not insane? That is a fair point. Hashtag Cypress Hill, yes. There we go. Um, uh, um, uh, I don't know what would make me crazy, honestly. Jordan's been through a lot. I've already, I've already, yeah, I've already at the point. So I think anything, I would just be on my rocker and just. Jordan's already been broken. You can't break this man. I've seen. I said this on Twitter today. I've seen. Fun fact. I've seen Joel Perzbella play for the Bucks twice. And uh, I believe I also saw him. I think I also saw him this past weekend at a establishment. So, Jordan, you can't. You've got to expand upon that story. I I went out with some friends on Saturday, and there was a very tall man. And I was thinking that guy. Well, first of all, obviously, the first day I thought was this guy is very tall, and uh. He looked like Joel Prisbilla. I don't know. He there's he has a very for some reason he has a very um uh a look that catches my eye right away. I guess. Distinct look. Distinct look. Boom. Um, and I I, I don't know. I could be wrong, but hashtag. Uh, no no hashtag. Um, no, this is this is <laughs> this is important information. If anyone knows, if Joel hashtag did I see Joel Prisbilla? <laughs> If, if he's in Milwaukee or not, people need to let us know. Um, I, I don't know why why would he be in Milwaukee. Did he finish his career? He did. He, he finished did his career. Unceremoniously oh. for Scott Skiles slash Jim Boylan. Um, I, I think you saw Joe Prisbella, Jordan. He's like, he where's Waldo? He's of German and Polish descent. Uh, he's, he's, in he's, in, he's in Milwaukee. Come on. Yeah, he definitely is. Um, he, was, he was born in Minnesota, so he's a Midwesterner through and through. It's all pointing to Jordan having seen I saw. him first Billa. <laughs> the joy in Jordan's eyes and then the sad realization that that was his third time on the Joe Prince Villa merry-go-round. <laughs> yeah. Uh, weirdly, he was spinning a basketball, but I still didn't know that he was Joel <laughs> I don't believe you, Jordan. I don't think Joel Prisbilla could spin a basketball. Jordan was, oh. that establishment Jordan was at was hosting the annual Joel Prisbilla convention. Um, that was the only one there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you didn't mention it was empty. Yeah. Man, um, I hope Joel Prisbilla is one of our listeners. Joel Prisbilla's TED Talk was what Jordan was at. Um, oh. Next question. I, I I don't know. We're moving on though because that was basically how we got there. Was Jordan can't be broken because he sees Joe Prisbilla everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> From at Metastic, 
you awaken in the Tesseract from Interstellar, but you can change one moment from this season. Not oh. knowing the fallout of your change, do you change anything? And if so, what are the possible side effects of your change? Well, it'd be tough to, to really know the side effects. This is all about wild what? speculation, Jordan. I know it's not your forte, but you've got to do it. Hey, I, I live in wild speculation. Um, oh, man. I don't think I'd change anything. Someone told me about the butterfly effect once, and that um, kind of stuck with me. Like, you don't know, like, you could do something, and then you come back to the present, and the nuclear war broke out. Like, there's no way of knowing. I don't want to mess with it. Hashtag Ashton Kutcher. <laughs> what? Was he, he in the movie? He was in, he was in the butterfly effect. Yeah. I've never seen it. I just heard about it. No, this is the movie. You definitely haven't heard about it. Yeah. Only, only Jordan. This is one that Jordan owns multiple copies of. Like mm -hmm. The Sixth Sense. Was it The Sixth Sense? Six no. Sense. No, right. it was. The Sixth Sense would have been acceptable. Oh, Lady of the yeah, Water. That's a good that movie. Was what it was. We are still looking to give away one of Jordan's Lady in the Water DVDs. Jordan will sign mm -hmm. it. Um... <laughs> I don't think they want that. <laughs> Hashtag Lady in the Water, yes. What is... Get at us, Jordan will... What? The main character in this movie's name is Cleveland Heap. I don't want it. That's a horrible name to start on. Jordan is that Lady in the Water or Butterfly Effect? That's Lady in the Water. Oh. Yeah, that's a terrible name. Imagine, like, the movie trailer... How about this? this My moment would be to change the name of Cleveland Heap. <laughs> no, could, the movie could turn into the butterfly effect too. You don't, you never know. I'm here trying to think of a real answer to this. Um, it's tough. I'm, I'm not kidding. I don't change the past ever. Hmm. I've got it. I would go back to the moment where Joe Prunty was moved back to his assistant coach's chair and leave hashtag playoff Prunty in control. Get that banner ready. Here's the side effects. Here's the side effects. You ready for this? Plus Jason 20 Kidd wins. Becomes GM. Jason Kidd becomes GM. I'll roll with trades that. away somebody for trades away Chris Middleton for Ricky Rubio. Okay, now I'm out. Next question. <laughs> Bucks go over. Yeah, there we go. This question, believe it or not, comes from at pencil two two nine two. What? Hashtag pencil lives. Yes. Um, pencil apologized for his absence for the last few months. Um, <laughs> what? He has been traveling around Europe. He's back. Just in time for our 50th episode. Couldn't have timed it better. If we have another season like this, does Monroe re-sign after? I, I found this one interesting because obviously my initial reaction was this is an obvious question. But then when I thought about it, let's say the books don't trade him and it comes to a place where the books would want to keep him or able to keep him. 
What are the chances that Monroe would resign? They can't keep him. Imagination, though. I don't want to imagine a world where we don't have to do worry you, do about you think, one of them. Though, that he would want to resign in Milwaukee. No, absolutely not. We saw how he left Detroit. We all know how that went down. It's going to be this. If if he were to stay out his one year duration of his contract, he would want to leave, and I would not blame him. Maybe if he stuck around and the Bucks were good next next year, um, they could keep him. Which again, no, they couldn't because of salary. But in imaginary Greg Monroe world we're in right now, which has a lot of yelling. Uh, no, if they if they stink for another year, he wants out. He wants to win. That's that's really his desire. I feel like I like the question because it is a very thought provoking question. But I feel like what's more interesting is, uh, and I, this is a very specific scenario. Say if he gets hurt next year, a la like Al Jefferson, he has a player option. The Bucks probably don't want him to exercise that player option at the point because. They already have Henson's extension. They're going to negotiate Giannis' extension. will probably be a near max, um, just a guess. <laughs> um, uh, they're going to be on the brink of you know, an extension with uh, Jabari, and they're going to have to account for you know Vaughn if they want to keep him in the future, this year's draft pick. I don't know. I think from in that scenario, I think – he would look out for himself and say, I, the, there is a lot of money on the table, even though the cap will be rising. He still is going to earn around like $16.5 million, whatever decimal it is. Um, but in the question scenario, I mean, he has to know that he is not the, the good fit, a good fit with this team. He Part just has of that, to though, Jordan, think about if he has another season that's just like this year, even. And it comes to this time next year. You gotta think where his value would be at around the league. Like if the books don't trade him, and they let it get to twelve months from now, he's had another mediocre to bad season. The press isn't so good for him. He's going to opt in for the money. Mm-hmm. It's like if if they don't have a reason that they can trade him somewhere else, there's a danger that. Then he could opt in. We spent all the time talking about, oh, well, he's not going to opt in. But the scenario where he does opt in would be for all the wrong reasons. That's something yeah. that doesn't get talked about, and that's a danger to maybe not moving him. Is so you said it could be an injury, but it could just be another bad year, and all of a sudden he doesn't feel like his value is quite as hot as it should be. He takes the security of another year on good money and sort of backs himself to then prove that he's worth more than that 12 months on. And that that's all it comes down to is if he feels, I'm not coming off my strongest year, I could take another year of 15 million and then be in a better position next summer to, to kick on. That's where the danger of not trading him would come into play. So inter- I hadn't actually thought much about that side of it, so definitely an interesting question. I will say that we've it was proven at the deadline, that he literally just has to have one more game to find someone to trade for him. Like, Markeith Morris was worth a first-round pick because he had, like, two good games after all the stuff he said 
with charges, I think, still awaiting him potentially in court. The the, the Suns got a first-round pick this year for him. Uh, if if I mean, if Greg Monroe has a big game 82, they might be able to find somebody for him. I mean, teams bite impulsively. And remember, the Bucks could trade with, say, the Pelicans the second that both of their seasons are over. They don't need to wait until the playoffs are over. Teams that are both outside of the playoffs can trade as soon as they begin. So they could strike while the iron's hot still. I don't, I don't feel like those two situations are relatable because Markeith Morris is under contract for $8 million until 2019. So it's easier to buy into Markeith Morris is still a player, will take the risk even if there's some short-term legal thing which is not going to be pretty for anyone, could hurt us. I could keep him out of the NBA. I, I see it as a lot easier to take the risk on him than uh, anyone buying into Monroe is trading to pay a guy $15 million, and then they're trading to pay a guy $15 million who may not even stay with them the following season. And pl- plus, too, he is, he's playing at a position where it is rapidly changing. Guys like him are kind of outcasted now. I mean, we talk about if you hear anybody talk about Jaleel Okafor, who just entered the league not even you know ten months ago, they really like his offensive game, but he defensively cannot fit. I mean, Greg Monroe is in that same position. Marquise makes- Morris could be a more modern center than Greg Monroe, technically. Yeah. <laughs> That's which is bizarre, but it's yeah, it's I don't know, it's such a weird. The whole thing having a guy like Monroe who had like I agree he had a very good first half of the season, second half dropped off. It's just it's weird how it's gonna be interesting how teams value guys like him or a guy like Al Jefferson's gonna be a free agent this summer, or even Jaleel Okafor whatever happens with in Philadelphia. It's gonna be interesting how teams value him and. How do they build around him? You know? Next question. And special shout out before the question. This one comes from our friend Georgie the Greek. George Condolian. George had a guest post with us, I want to say three or four days ago now, about Yanis and what Yanis means to him as a Greek, to what he means what to let me start again. What he means to the people of Greece, how sort of the parallels between the highs maybe in Yanis's rise and the lows in Greek culture, Greek society, the Greek political landscape. Just a really great piece, which added a lot to, I think, anyone who read it in terms of how they view Yanis, because so much gets talked about the size of his Achilles and things like this. We, we see so many stories about this, but to actually get a real grasp on Yana's background, what he means to the people of Greece, it just adds something different. There's a whole part of Yana's which I feel is underexplored amongst everyone in the NBA, and it was nice to get an insight into that. So, great, great piece from George. If you haven't read it, it's on our site. Go look it up. Yana Santacumpo, The Pride of Greece. Fittingly enough, Georgie's question, when will the books build a Greek temple where we can sacrifice our harvest for Yanis? 
I feel like they... this is this is a good time for a soon meme. Before they get a D League team. Oh god, that one's stung. I have to move on after that one. I didn't like that. This one from Georgie again with a more serious thought. Let's not go too deep here, but yes or no's. Is Kid the coach of the future for this team? Why is Georgie out here trying to build cases against us? Georgie, I'm gonna ask you Georgie just asked questions. That's I, when I saw this question come in, I thought, it's funny. I don't think we've ever discussed it that directly. These are the sort yeah, of these not... are the sort of curveballs we normally try to sort of tiptoe around, but Georgie's just yeah. come and hit us with the jugular. Gerald Bourget did this to me too. Bourget, it's Bourget. He doesn't do the French pronunciation. He hit me with a question like this too. Why are you guys always trying to put me on trial on podcasts? Let me dance around this. I don't want to directly answer this. I love you, Georgie, but don't do this to me. Do it now. We're we're answering. I'm gonna answer too. Coach what, is long, what does long-term mean? No, it's coach of the future. Has, if he's hashtag owning the future. Uh, coach of the future uh, with this team means, do you think he is the coach that can bring them to the title run? No. No. No's all around. Thanks for that, Joe. I wish I had a gamble. <laughs> On the table. <laughs> next next season on winning six. Jordan might have a gavel. Well, At Alex you. underscore Canning zero two three. One out of fifty an episode. Will Jabari and Yanis come combine for fifty or more three point makes next year? Thirty five combined this year for the dynamic duo. That's a definite yes to me. Definitely. I, I think. I think they'll both make that separately. In fact, I'll go further. I think by 90s basketball, Jason Kibbe's he expects 93 pointers. Sorry, that was a bad reference. Um, yeah, I, I say yes. You had so much steam and you just abandoned yeah, I liked it. I thought it was going to be good. Jordan quits on. Jordan I didn't like the premise. When he approached them with the most <laughs> you, enthusiasm to begin with. You quit on the good ones, but then you'll take like something that makes no sense, and that'll be ten minutes. True. Yeah, he's... Jordan's bailouts remain fascinating. Uh, I drive. By the way, I, I, I like driving to the in the paint, and then you kick it out, and hope someone makes it. And usually, I airball the, the shot. <laughs> See, you followed that one true. That was one that was going nowhere. That was a pretty good one. And yeah. Just for the record, right now, I have Jordan blocked on Twitter. No, no. <laughs> I told you what would happen if you tweeted that, Jordan. I saw it. I think I wouldn't see it, but I saw it. From at PSBigDog62, what do we think about Steve Novak for 2017? Assistant coach. <laughs> oh, God. Well, actually, that's not, ne- that's not necessarily asking next year, is it? 2017 could be. Oh, God, Jordan. <laughs> the, the, uh, both of you criticized me a few weeks back, maybe uh, quite a while now, for ominously suggesting that Steve Novak will be back next year. I very I, I don't want to think about that. I'm, I'm very, very confident Steve Novak comes back next year. I think he is, too. 
Maybe he'll come back to his hometown team, the Chicago Bulls. Don't upset the people, Ty. They're all upset anyway. I'll throw more gas on the fire. From at Alex Koenig, from at Alex underscore Koenig zero two three. What realistically can we expect next year as far as win loss record? This is, I think, this is too tough without seeing the moves that happened this summer. Maybe if we yeah. take this as hypothetically, if the roster was to be the same group of players next season, what would they? Look like win loss. Uh, probably around the season before this one. Just just thanks to the development of the big three, I think they'd be around a 500 team. Uh, I would go. <laughs> I would go thirty. Eight wins in 42. 40. Wow, they're only playing 80 44. games. 44. Oh. <laughs> I feel shaved. I can't count. Uh, I, think I must 40. be the only person who can count in this podcast. Uh, can confirm. I think they'd be close to 40, and I'd be very worried if next year the big three alone couldn't carry the team to 40. That would scare me if they were around 38 next year. Really would worry me. Um, I, I think they'd be around the 40 win mark. Next one at Alex underscore Koenig 023. What can we realistically expect to receive if we trade Greg Monroe? Potential suitors, question mark. We've done this a lot recently. Um... There's a question later in the mailbag. Sort of, we'll touch on a different part of this. I'd take any first-round pick I could get for Greg Monroe. Obviously not protections, like heavily protected to a stupid point where it becomes a second-round pick, but any first-rounder that would actually eventually, and preferably sooner rather than later, if it could be this year, it'd be great, but convey as a first-rounder. I would move Greg Monroe. Yeah. Potential suitors is tough. Um, Portland will come up because of cap space because they previously were interested in New Orleans. The, the home connection. Boston. Boston because of cap space. Charlotte. I like Charlotte. I just feel... There's a perfect Greg Monroe-sized hole to be plugged there. Um, that's the team that I'd press. I just don't know what they'll have to trade. Hmm. I don't know. It's interesting. That will run over the summer quite a bit. Um, at Alex underscore Koenig 023 again. I have a quick answer for this one. The question is, should the books make a run at free agent to be Brandon Jennings? No. no. Is my no. From at Shaq B. Snacken, 
What's your take on the small guard versus wing for the starting spot debate? Sounds like Ty and Adam disagree. What, is, what does he mean for like... As in... Well, I think uh, like Corey Brewer or somebody like that could start. Well, for the fifth starter, so if Giannis is playing the point, it's like the whole debate over what sort of player comes in to actually play point guard. Yeah, we disagree on that. I want a small guard, yeah. You you don't want a wing player. I don't think it's ideal. I mean, if they get... Well, I mean, it's not ideal. They get the right wing player could work, but I'd rather a small guard. I mean, look, we all want Patrick Beverly. Like that's no, the guy we're always talking Patrick about. Beverly. It's not. It's not that. I just prefer the mold of a small guard. There's guys in this draft. I'd take pretty much any of the mid. I don't want any of the top point guards. Any of the mid-range point guards in this class. I would take. I saw you try your eyes. Tyler. Yeah, because we, we we've learned that mid-round rookies and later don't make good starters in their first years. Well, like this team if we're not talking mid-rounders with the books, what we've learned is that's the best place to pick is in the mid-first round. Giannis wasn't, was not a starter his first year. So, but I'm not talking about Giannis even. Giannis, John Henson, Larry Sanders, mid-first guys. Yeah, okay. I, I just, in a perfect world, you have a small guard. I, there, there's many more wings to fill that gap than there are small guards who fit. Let's let's move it to the next question because I think it ties into it. Once again, I shall be snacking. This was based on a conversation me and Jordan had last week, so I think Ty will disagree with this slightly. Why do you think Guau can't guard smaller guards when Rubio and MCW at times in brackets do a good job at it? More athletic oh. than both. I'd clarify that. I do think he can guard smaller guards. But the books aren't looking for a wing that can guard smaller guards. They're going to have to do it all the time. It's like, it can't just be that at times they can do it or against certain matchups. They need someone who, obviously, this isn't easy done by anyone, but they'll be well-equipped as well as possible to go from guarding Steph Curry one night to Russell Westbrook the other night. I feel the books need to do as good a job as possible at not leaving a gap where there's these glaring mismatches where certain games will come up and they don't have an answer for it. So I think Luau can guard smaller guards, could be very good at it. Do I think him versus Steph Curry sounds like a great matchup, even by the token that Steph against anyone is not a good matchup? No, I'm not comfortable with that. There are lots of smaller guards, faster, more dynamic, better dribblers, who I just wouldn't be as comfortable seeing a wing, even a laterally quick, versatile, athletic wing guarding them. I don't know. I mean, I feel like with all the switching the Bucks do anyway, I mean, you have Chris Middleton and Giannis you could put on those guys if you wanted to, too, even if they're not as quick, they're longer. I mean, it's not ideal, but it's we don't live in a world where ideal things happen. I mean... I don't know. I, I don't think it'd be a disaster if they went with five wing players or bigger in the starting lineup. I mean, you could sub out for some games, too, if you really had to. Yeah, I agree. I mean, they're kind of, you know, flirting with that idea right now and the times that they start Vaughn because um, he's not really a point guard. He's just, you know, 
a guard, I guess. Um, do, you, do you think? Because I'm, I feel very confident that they are trying out the idea of him as the mold of shooter. I yeah, I think they are, but it's not an accurate representation because, well, he hasn't been shooting that well. But even besides that, I mean, he's not a good defender. I mean. Putting someone who's like a veteran wing defender like Corey Brewer in that spot would yield a lot different results than having Rashad Vaughn there. But I think they're, it's, it's, they're, they're trying the, the, the basic mold, but I, I think it's short-sighted to say that if this doesn't work, then that idea couldn't work too because the personnel will be different. Yeah, I agree. I mean, again, like we talked about this last week, Vaughn is a rookie. He still has, you know, a lot to do or a lot to uh, work on. But um, from the point of where they are at this season, it's not. I, I mean, good on them that they're actually trying to, you know, trying to do that because Giannis having the ball in his hands primarily in the, for the offense, if it frees up certain, you know, these roles on both ends of the floor and stuff like that, so um, yeah, I would say yeah. Jack B. Snacken, if you like having a wing for the last spot, how do you rate Clarkson and Fournier and are either possible? I like Clarkson because Clarkson's a guard. Um, not necessarily. Fournier is, a, Fournier is like barely a wing. He's a shooting guard. Uh, he plays some small forward. I don't feel like... That's he, a small, I, small I like, forward. I like Fournier a lot. He'd be way too expensive to ever be reality, as Clarkson would. But I think if you're going to buy into the wing, it needs to be a two-way wing. There can't be any compromise. Yeah. It needs to be someone who can both shoot and defend. And I don't know if Fournier's defense is quite up to that. Yeah, I mean, he's just... Realistically, he's going to be too expensive. Um, he's a good shooter. He's a good offensive player. But defensively, I don't know. I haven't seen enough of him defensively to be like, oh, like he could you know, fit any type of team on both ends of the floor. I, I feel like he's more of like this. Not, it's not J.J. Redick-like, but he certainly has these kind of true shooting guard qualities, I would say. Next one from Ab. Sorry, go on, Ty. I was just, just going to say, I think he's, whoever signs him, they're, they're going to be an overpay, I feel like. I, I don't know. I don't see, I've, I've heard that Evan Fournier is going to command these crazy salaries. I don't see why. Yes, he's an efficient shooter. He scores 15 points per game. I mean, it's not like he's out here dropping 25. I mean, he's a good player, don't get me wrong. But for a guy who scores 15 points, who's you know not the defender Chris Middleton is certainly, I, I just don't see why I want to give him you know the whatever eight and eight figure deals that are being talked about. I don't I don't like his fit with the Bucks. I, I see a lot of Fournier talk like he's gonna. I don't I just I don't, I don't like it that much. I guess is what I'm saying. Uh, check be snacking. Um... Is Monroe for Pelicans' first pick reasonable? Would you use the pick on a backup four? Does Chris, being Marquise Chris, have lots of potential? His uh, questions are all leading in one direction. 
I think Shaq be snacking knows Marquise Chris. His next his next question does talk about Marquise Chris as well. Um, is Monroe for Pelicans first pick reasonable? It is for the books. I'm not sure if it is. For I mean, Pelicans. yeah. Um, I would, I would what are the Pelicans? What are they? Six? Yeah, they're six. They could be five. five? It could be five because the Timberwolves. Yeah, could they're, win they're not. They're not. I, I don't think they consider that trade. That would be the final nail in Del Dem's coffin if it wasn't there already. <laughs> I mean, they could they could just take uh, I don't know how to pronounce it. They could take Jacob there and have a, a low post center for cheap who Jakob plays defense. Poodle. I mean, Jakob Poodle. Um, I I don't think he's a better player than Greg Monroe. I mean, obviously he's going to be a rookie, obviously. But, I mean, the Pelicans, I don't know. The Pelicans are dumb. I mean, they've shown that time and time again. The only smart thing they've done is taking the surefire number one pick, Anthony Davis, and then re-signing him. Every other personnel move they made has been pretty disastrous. I mean, even the Ish Smith trade, like, he's probably better than some of the players that they're playing right now, and they gave him away for pretty much nothing. So, I mean, is it reasonable? Does it matter for the Pelicans if it's reasonable? Maybe not. If that deal went down, I don't think I'd be using that pick on a backup four because that that pick is going to be... That's like if you really want to find, if you feel there's a long-term point guard, long-term center on the board, that pick is high enough that you'll have your your choice between guys at those positions pretty much. So I don't think that would be backup four, but it would open the possibility two first-round picks in any place. I think, I don't know, did we talk about it last week on the podcast? We might have joked about it, Jordan. There's a lot of backup fours, so yeah. even if it was late in the first round, you got a, another pick from somewhere, there'll be a backup four there for you to take. Don't worry about that. Um, next one from a check be snacking. No secret that I want Luau and Chris. How do you guys feel about taking a risk on young players this season opposed to more experienced vets in free agency or trades? If the book stayed super young and missed postseason again next year, how would you feel? I would not feel very good. I don't I don't like that idea. It starts to get too close to your wasting prime time in guys' careers or you're not going to be positioned right for their prime. Um, I also would like to see some more experienced players come in this year. They don't have to be necessarily like 30-plus-year-old veterans, but I'd like to see established, experienced NBA players. Agreed. I mean, this year we saw what happened when you lose veterans, but not just veterans, you lose productive veterans. Um, and if you had to, you know, do what the Bucks have done a lot in years past, pay, maybe pay a couple more million dollars than normal just to get a guy, you know, to unify the locker room or keep things, you know, you know, gelling, all this stuff. So be it. I mean, that's, I feel like that's the risk, the risk you have to take when you, <laughs> what you see what happened this year when this kind of serious serious happens. question on that Jared Dudley 
Jared Dudley, Ursan, and Zaza are all free agents this summer, am I right? Yes. Ursan has an option, but I think it's team. It's team. It's like a weird. It's like a. I think it's like an early termination option. Oh, it's one of those. Yeah. So if if they don't do anything, they, I mean the Magic are pretty dumb too. They might actually keep him, but he's he's expensive. Hey man, after tonight's game. Yeah, he's they might just they might just resign him. <laughs> you said this a long time out, Jordan. You had a feeling that the books might look at Jared Dudley again this summer. Do you, I, like considering players are going to be available, if they could get. I'm gonna say any one of those three guys because I don't want to. I'm not. I'm not too keen on the idea of Versa. I suppose they have a gap. They have a gap at the four. I don't know. It would seem hilarious if after all the years where Bucks fans wanted to trade Ursan, if Ursan came back, um, obviously he'd be on a very different contract. But I'm back. If they could get one of those guys at the right sort of a mid-level price. Is it worth considering? Is it worth revisiting? Yeah, I think so. I would say, call me crazy, I would say Dudley and Ursan, I don't think I would do Zaza. Oh, Joe. I love Zaza. I love Zaza. I just don't don't see... I I do see why he would be a productive part of next year's Bucks, but they have so many more, I mean, they're just at a position where they're, besides Henson, like, the future at center is such a weird, it's such a weird spot, and to me, Dudley has always made sense because he was the more, I would think, I think he was certainly more vocal about how much of an effect coming to Milwaukee, and especially, he was at a, before he came to Milwaukee, he didn't really think highly of it. And I feel like that goes a long way, and where he is now, I mean, the Wizards have had a really disappointing, horrible season. I don't know if – I think he would look this way and say, you know, I, there was a good thing going here. They have a bright future, maybe not – and he's also getting older. I think he's going to be, you know, 31. I just think he always he, – he's the guy that makes sense to me because he is a good shooter. He's a High, uh, highly intelligent basketball player that they need, and just character-wise, he's you know one of the best teammates. Yeah, I mean, the fact that he was one of these guys that everybody rallied around, and he was only here a year. I mean, that's just that's really rare, and I feel like the Bucks, and personally, I think I feel like they will do a lot. They'll consider a lot to have him back because of what he could do for this team at a you know pivotal part of their. Organization. Take take all of my Zaza biases out of this. I th- I think Zaza fits coming back. If you look at right, there's going to be uncertainties at center. But if you look, at, if you want to get the best out of John Henson, John Henson was really vocal about how Zaza helped him. What if they decide there's not a point guard they they like? They want to look at trades or they want to look at free agency or they want to do whatever whatever the way they decide to approach point guard and they decide with their pick someone like Jakob Potl is the guy they think he could be their center so all of a sudden you're going to look to move Monroe Plumlee is a restricted free agent who you wouldn't keep in that situation 
You've got Henson in for 44 million. You've got a, a rookie coming in at center. You'd want to bring a veteran guy in. And Zaza's season, as credible as incredible as it was early on, has trended downwards. Mm-hmm. And his value in the summer could be pretty good. I feel like most good teams, they always tend to have a, like a real veteran backup center. And I'm not talking about it mean much more than that. But I think there are, there's a number of clear scenarios where he could be perfect for that. It's funny, what you say about Dudley is true as well. With the lack of options at the four, there's probably a strong case for Ursan. I don't know what it says that having got rid of them, there's a case that all three guys could still sort of matter to the team. Maybe it shows that it was more a case of financially the deals weren't right and under different circumstances that would work. But I don't know, we'll see. Definitely an interesting one when free agency nears and when it opens. Um, funnily enough, next question is from Alex underscore Koenig 023. Should the Bucks make a run at Ursan? We'll skip over that one. We sort of covered the older guys. Um, at Shackby Snacken, how would you feel about MCW being in control of a second unit and turned loose like in Philly? Chance he would accept that. Uh, he seems like the kind of guy who would accept that. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I, mean, I don't know him, but just based on what I've read and what I've seen, uh, he has to know that he hasn't exactly lit the world on fire in his time with the Bucks. Um, to see him in any sort of capacity be effective would be very a very welcome sight to my eyes, definitely. Yeah, I mean, barring some crazy comeback I feel like that's going to be his place in the league you know and I think he does a good job at it I know it's easy to talk about the fit and we have talked about it a lot of times but I just feel like he is at the point where he can make a positive impact coming off the bench um, certainly he's a good finisher all this stuff um, yeah I, I don't know I would feel good about it I think it can only work if you give him an actual bench to work with. Like yeah, he, yeah. you need to give him a couple of respectable shooters, and then it, he can, that can complement his ability driving to the rim. In terms of would he accept that he's not in any sort of position of power, so he'd have no choice, and I think he'd gladly accept any role that gives him greater responsibility and a chance to sort of rebuild his reputation, showcase his skills again. And next one from Achakbi Snacken. A little bit different, this question. What makes a successful podcast? I love it immediately because he's inferring that we're successful. Um, <laughs> how do you guys prepare? Do you listen to other podcasts? <laughs> I don't know if that last part is a compliment or not. It could be... I don't know. Uh, I'll start this one off, seeing as this one is the one that I host. Um... How do I prepare? I don't. Um, there's no specific preparation that goes in because I think very simply it makes it easy for us. This is little more than the three of us getting together. Not all in one place, but feels like it. Once a week to talk basketball. We watch 
pretty much every books game, a lot of other games from around the NBA, from right around the team, we read pretty much everything good, bad, and horribly inaccurate that is written about the team. So the preparation sort of takes care of itself, for me anyway, in terms of just regular day-to-day stuff that becomes a part of writing and so in my entire case running a Milwaukee Books site. Um, do we listen to other podcasts? Yeah, I think all three of us do. Um, Which ones do you listen to? Me, I, I listen to... I'd say the basketball podcast, I've cut back a lot. I used to listen to everything. I don't anymore. There's Maybe just because there's so much out there. Um, my basketball podcast is The Low Post. That's It's nothing sort of groundbreaking there. I haven't sort of introduced anyone to The Low Post. But it doesn't get much better. Um, you don't get a lot of the sort of circus acts and freak shows that I feel you get on other... NBA podcasts um, so low post for me would be my best basketball podcast the podcast I listen to um, I guess most sort of the one I never miss an episode of is the MMA hour Ariel Hawani's podcast um, which maybe explains why our podcast goes on for so long because before listening to that, which is generally three to four hours long every week, I would never have been able to wrap my head around the idea of listening to a podcast for such a long period of time. Something like that, and regular listeners would be nothing new to. If you're still listening at this point to this podcast, you'll know this doesn't all have to be sort of consumed in one go. It can be done over time. If you're just interested in the conversation... It's fun to listen to. Maybe my two two sports related, I suppose, factual podcasts. I'm also a fan of serial and this American life, things like that. What about you guys? That's, that's it. That's that's all the podcasts you're a fan of? That's it. I include Time Out with Ty as like this. If they're asking successful podcasts to us, I'm assuming you're you're involved. This is how sensitive he is. We won't hear from him for weeks now because of that moment, people. Um, we'll let Jordan go first so that Ty can recover. Um, how I prepare with, uh, before a podcast, I like to gargle a lot of Listerine. <laughs> he does it during the podcast sometimes, too. Yeah. No, I don't do that. Um... <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I don't. I, I don't really prepare because Jordan, sometimes uh, you bring you bring notes. I On occasion, notes. I have seen. I do have a notepad. Pen and paper raised up. Yeah. Um. Uh. I wish I prepared more. Maybe because I talk very long and unwieldy sentences. Uh. Um, as far as podcasts, I probably listen to too many podcasts that I can. I mean, I usually backlog a lot. I think, like a lot of sports. I don't know. Low post, very good. Bill Simmons is entertaining uh, at times. Um, and I like cereal. I like 
comedy podcast. That's how I started listening to podcasts, really. You know, things like The Nerdist. There's a really funny one, like Never Not Funny, all this stuff. I don't know. Do what you want. There's, I mean, there is so many podcasts out there that are very successful, surprisingly. But uh, I don't know. It's fun. Yeah, it's a it's a growing field. I have uh I do have preparation that I don't know if Jordan knows about. It. I think Adam knows about it if he remembers. <laughs> I rap I rap before every podcast. Uh, that's, that's just before you truth. go further on this, the way the way we do our podcast, um, we all get on a video call. The audio gets recorded. This is what it comes out of. So, I'm always the one to start the call, but sometimes. It just runs a little bit longer, or it comes in a little bit sooner than Ty thinks it is. So I have <laughs> caught the end of Ty's pre-podcast raps before. You're blessed. Uh, blessed is not the word. I mean, I've, that's that's what I do to prepare. It gets my vocal cords loose. It gets me excited and energized, which you need to do when you record three-hour podcasts weekly. Um. Uh, as far as podcasts I listen to, um, never ones I'm on. First off, I can't do it. It's super weird to me. I tried to. I tried to listen to Winning Six One. I made it until I started talking and I turned it off. Uh, after that, I was thinking about how I never do that. I tried listening to Time Out with Ty number 21. Couldn't do it. Turned it off. I was like, this is super weird. Why don't I listen to myself talk? I'm not that into myself, which will come as a surprise to Adam and many of you. But I, I can't he's, do he's it. He's lying to you all now because he, he edits his own podcast, so he listens to himself. Hardly. I hardly. I just. I trick you. I'm like, Adam, do you want to listen to this before everyone else? Let me send it to you right away. What did you think? And then if if you're like, yeah, it was good. It's I don't I don't need to go listen to it again. You're just showing your process. Yeah, I've given up my charade now. I have to start doing it to somebody else. But uh, what do I listen to? Uh, the low post is a must listen. I also like. Depending wholly on the guest, the vertical uh, podcast with Woj, like some of them have been really fantastic. Some of them have been kind of like I've I've I don't want to talk trash about Woj because he's already got me blocked. Please on Twitter, don't do but that. I've fallen Please. asleep to some of those podcasts. I mean, some of them are just I don't know. I, I think he's a good a good interviewer, but I don't know. Some of them just are, are dry, and they'll just be talking about stuff I don't know anything about. Everyone he interviews, he knows super well because he knows everything about everyone, and it just goes over my head sometimes. Uh, I, otherwise, I like the Bill Simmons podcast. I haven't listened to it in a little while though, because again, it's it's some of it's on the guest, and I really I don't want to listen to golf podcasts. I I can hardly watch golf as it is. I definitely can't listen to people talk about golf for an hour without even getting to watch it. That's too much for me. Maybe I'll give it a shot just to see, but uh, that's probably about it as far as I can. I haven't. I need to check out more non-sports podcasts. I've never listened to any non-sports podcast, so uh, maybe I'll, I'll give that a try at some point too. To answer the first part of it, the what makes a successful podcast, and not to assume we're successful, but there's no set formula. I, I think that's the best way of putting it. Like, there's there's one set formula. Keep doing it. We're yeah. on number fifty. Like, 
if if when we've we've uh, the site has not missed a week of podcasts since we started, like we've mm. done one a week and then two a week for the whole time, at least. So I mean I think that's it's like anything else. I mean the more you do it, the better you get. I mean, winning six one was better than I expected. The three minutes of it I listened to, but <laughs> I, I think we're all unquestionably better now. Then we were. I told you I turned it off as soon as I started talking. Um, I, I will we're all say, better now than we were then. I will say Jordan Tresky was a was a pro on his debut. Wow, um, yeah, he came out. He came out swinging. <laughs> he, he really did. If you go back and listen, Jordan was as smooth and as confident as he is today. Maybe more so. Maybe with time, Jordan. <laughs> Jordan <laughs> I don't associate myself with. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, for for us, I know. I guess the, the biggest part of it is it's when people actually care, as cheesy as it sounds, people listen and they interact with it as we're lucky enough to have so many of you do. That's when it matters. Um, we are not a podcast with thousands of people listening to us every week, far from it. But those of you who regularly listen, you care, you interact with us about it. That makes it work. Dumb well. hashtags. Yeah, dumb hashtags. <laughs> 40 question mailbags like this one um, it makes it worth all of our while it's a way of us all talking books together so um, makes what makes successful podcasts there's no formula a podcast doesn't have to be just 30 minutes long an hour long three hours long it doesn't have to take on a certain structure all it has to do really is find an audience and then engage with its audience and that's what we try to do every week on, on both of our podcasts uh, behind the book pass. Isn't that right, Ty? There's a second one? There is. I had to I had to give this guy a second one. Uh, just so he'd stop showing up to the first one. Uh, <laughs> the next question from at David Dunn twenty one. At this point, we've reached another shout out. Um if you listen to this, there's a good chance you've seen it already. But if you haven't, David Dunn does some great books, video edits. He did his season review and released it last week. Um, it includes some winning six clips, which was a entirely terrifying prospect to be watching and enjoying the video and then hear my own voice and go, oh my god, what Jason Kidd quote has he pulled from me? I've said a lot of things. <laughs> These podcasts go late for me. My tongue gets it's pretty loose towards the end. That's a terrifying moment when you go, what what quote is going to be in here? Um, but in all seriousness, it does a great job of sort of guiding you through this crazy, crazy season. It's only when you watch something like that you realize how much of a roller coaster it's been. It's funny as always. Uh, David is widely known for being Michael Carter Williams' biggest fan, and his love <laughs> for MCW comes across so clearly in the video. Those of you who are not big fans of MCW might be worth giving it a miss because it's a little bit sickly just how much he really loves Michael Harrow Williams. <laughs> to get to his question though, and this this is one that I don't know I have an answer for, it's it's a bit too good. If Kid and Tibbs owned the racehorse, what would it be named? Oh 
man. He did. did he, I think he, he did, did come with some names, right? He came with some suggestions, sis. So yeah. <laughs> his suggestions were forty-eight minutes, death march, <laughs> suicide squad. How did it go from the first one to the second? Two? And my personal favorite, hubris. <laughs> Is the first one a reference to 48 hours? No, I think it's a reference to that they played our players for 48, 48 minutes a game. Yeah. I, oh. I do quite like that one. I thought it was like a 48 hours reference, like they had handcuffed together, but they hate each other. No, the, these are all basically about two coaches who don't like to let their players have a moment's rest. Um, um, I guess an easy one is eight no rest for the wicked. I guess. I don't know. That's too easy. Um, I don't know. We might have to think about that for a week. That's not one. I mean, it's a big responsibility to name a racehorse. Yeah. Yeah. All the great, thoughtful names. Hey, California Chrome. Did it come? Let us us think about this. Maybe maybe we'll come up with a name good enough and we'll all pull in and buy a horse. Who knows? (laughs) Chances are it won't be a very good horse, but no. <laughs> it'll probably be a guy dressed in a horse costume. Maybe. It's yeah, gonna be to say, we, we have made Jordan do more demeaning things, but yeah. I'll gladly yeah. accept them. <laughs> From at TRW24, who are the players in the world? wasn't. Whoa! How is that not the last question? Because they kept... That, it was, that's it was supposed, where you end. It was supposed to be, but they kept sending questions. And I've stopped checking. I couldn't check anymore because they keep coming. But they just kept sending them. From a TRW24, who are the players in the roster that you don't want to see back for next season? Uh, Have we got the time it takes think- to list all these guys off? I would just say that I that I for sure don't want to see back if you don't think about the price and everything, if you just think of what players I don't want on the team regardless of any other factors. I'd probably only say OJ Mayo and Greg Monroe. I think I mean if they look like if you do, if in a theoretical world you could bring back everybody on reasonable salaries besides those guys, I think that's a pretty good foundation to a team that just needs a few holes plugged. Yeah, in all seriousness, I I agree with that. They'd be my two guys. Um, Before the season, we would have said Bayless, but yeah, I'll, yeah. See, technically, I think my answer is that I still want to say Bayless because I feel like he's going to get paid a lot of money. But if we are just talking sort of skill sets, names, yeah, I. In a vacuum, I don't want Monroe back. I could, if Mayo's contract was stupid cheap, mm. I'd sort of just shrug my shoulders. I wouldn't care that much. But I, ideally, no, not for me. Yeah, I think it's easy to just say Monroe and Mayo. There's more guys in that that there has to be because they need more upgrades, like. He's young, so obviously he can still improve, but 
Damien Ingles isn't anywhere close to cutting it right now. No. You'd have to make sure he can stay in the D-League longer than his time at Canton and Westchester. You'd want an actual D-League team that he was properly assigned to down there. The books don't have that luxury. No, they're going to get that Greek temple first, I heard. (laughs) Even if if he hadn't got injured, and maybe this is what changed it, Inglis could have benefited from being stashed in Europe for a few years. Yes. Who knows? Maybe they do that. You can't like restash him. Yeah, can when they've signed him, he's their player. Well, that's so. what they do with Ursan. That is true. That, is, that was a long... I don't know if they changed that rule or what, but that was... That was weird. Oh, yeah, they, yeah they probably did. They definitely changed. That must have been a weird conversation, though, man. Like, yeah, you were on our NBA team and all, but we're going to send you back. That's, like, for me, that sounds so normal because coming from a soccer background, big teams loan players out all the time. That's exactly yeah, the sort of thing that would happen. It's like, you're not quite good enough to make it here. You've got potential... We're going to send you to this place where you can get playing time, prove you're good enough, and you come back and play a part. Save you in baseball, too. Yeah, but that's that's in the country, though. I mean, you can do that with the D-League, but sending a guy to over an ocean is a little different. Did they have him under that's, contract? That is the most, that's the most American thing I've ever heard. Send you over an ocean. <laughs> what's the ocean have to do with it's it? It's literally a very long be, way. They don't have catapults. The, could be sent to Mexico. <laughs> Send him to Mexico. No, he couldn't be sent to Mexico. Why? Oh, I guess I thought you meant D-League. No, right? I'm not talking about the D-League. D-League. We're talking about the oceans that you're so worried about. Well, that would be different, too. I wasn't thinking about Mexico. A different country is... His shirt would, would have a different meaning if he went to Mexico. Trust me, you you guys live in a big, big country, so the idea of like other countries seem far away. I live in a tiny, tiny country surrounded by water where you have to go somewhere else for basically anything. There's nowhere I can go that isn't off this island from going somewhere. So the idea of sort of sending someone somewhere else, that's that's not a big deal. It's a small world we live in. After all, I don't, gonna, I don't we, know about all that. I'm not. I'm not looking to promote Jordan saying it's a small world. That's not. <laughs> that was not the intention there. I can't believe he bid on that one. I shouldn't be surprised, but <laughs> at TRW24, which playoff bandwagon should Bucks fans jump on? This is an easy one. The answer is the Atlanta Hawks bandwagon. <laughs> you all jump on it. You all get behind the Hawks. Um, there's the whole box connection and um, the Milwaukee Hawks well I heard of them that's your that's your your answer I'm not going to allow enough time for anyone else to chime in on that if you're listening to this you're on the Hawks bandwagon from well from now I suppose Wednesday doesn't really matter you can just from now consider yourself a Hawks fan at Alex underscore if only it were that easy I know, I'm a Hawks fan, I can't even watch the games. I'm watching Greg Monroe dunk instead. At Alex underscore Koenig 023. 
This is the way you end the podcast. In reference to last week's podcast, would Kelly Olinick improve the team? Yes, he would. What do you mean, would he improve the team? Like, if if you replace Greg Monroe with him? You just said Kelly Olinick. They're going to have roster spots this summer. Let's imagine they add Kelly Olinick. Does he improve the team? Uh, maybe a little. I don't. I don't think it's like a five-win swing for Kelly Olynyk. I think any big man. No, any big man. Greg Monroe. Does Kelly Olynyk improve the team over Greg Monroe? I'd say yes because you get Kelly Olynyk and you have the the extra cap space that was tied up in Monroe. I'd, I'd be inclined to say yes on that because. It's not like it's just a straight swap of a player. You've got the situation as well. I think Olinic and then the space to get someone else. I like that. I think it's a yes. I, I wouldn't overthink it. I think it's a yes. I would say yes I, as well. I think it's, yeah, I suppose it's a yes. So. That is it for this podcast. Episode 50. <laughs> On a high note, I, I suppose. Yes. That, is, that is a high note. I mean... It's Kelly Olenek. I'm not going to be thrilled over that's Kelly That's the sort of note that people who are still listening to this podcast come here for, for Kelly Olenek talk. To take a moment, sincerely, if you've listened to us from the very start, if this is your first time listening to us and you've got all the way through this podcast, any of you who've tweeted at us, sent us mailbag questions, we are... So, so grateful. Um, I, I don't know why you do it, but thank you so very much. Hopefully we'll have another 50. We, we, I'm sure we will. Um, if any of you make it through the next 50, well then, it's, it's going to be incredible stuff, but stick with us. Bear with us. We'll talk about the things you want us to talk about. Um, Sometimes the things you don't want us to talk about, but we're here to live the full books roller coaster experience. We just appreciate yeah. that we let the conversation begin. And if you get that reference, you spent way too many hours of your life listening to us. <laughs> you know what I was just thinking? This is episode 50, and let's say conservatively, on average, we are two hours of podcast. That means we have over four consecutive days of podcasts when this posts. You could spend the better chunk of an entire week listening to us talk. You should somebody do it and try not to die during, but do it and let us know what happens. Hashtag half of a week of your life. Yes. <laughs> Don't dare these people. They'll do it. I, I know one or two you know, of these people in, who will do it. I, let's, let's not dare them. If you throw in time out with Ty, you're up to five days. That's a work week. So take off work for a week, Monday through Friday, bam. Don't sleep. Win in six just, listen, just listen to Behind the Book Pass podcasts. Yeah. Thanks very much for listening. Make sure to keep reading us on site. Follow us on Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Follow us on SoundCloud, add us on Stitcher, and we'll be back next week. <laughs>